Hello everybody and welcome back to Lighting the Pipes. Thank you for joining us here today. We're going to be taking a look at James Kestrel's Edgar Award winning novel Five Decembers, published a couple of years ago. My name is Scott Powell and as always I'm joined by my reader in arms across the pond, Joshua Dwight Gordon-Taylor. Hello. Hey pal. Scott uh, great Douglas to- Powell. I know. I don't know why I, I. I know. I know. <laughs> I don't know why I do that. I don't know why I do the middle name thing. But uh, maybe it's a Roman thing. Like you. Maybe. Uh, you want to give me my whole like what is it? Cognomen, uh, uh, nomen, and uh, co- yeah, the, and cognomen. The mm-hmm. whole. Uh, <laughs> it could be. Yeah. It's really just a, a sign of respect. A sign of respect. Or. Yeah, absolutely. Or like in in Russia, where they call each other by like their first name and family name. You know, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah, or Japan, Takahashi, mm. Powell-san. As you can see, Powell-san. my name on the uh, podcasting is Taylor-san. So there you go. It is. Yeah, I went for yeah. um, what did I go for? Beam, uh, Beamer's Benz dealer. That's who I am. You mean the cigarette smoking man? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. What are we talking about? Uh, what are these inside jokes all about? Well, stay tuned, everybody, and uh, and you'll hear us go through it. Yeah. Five Decembers is the book that we're starting off our autumn series with, and uh, it was a lot of fun. I think, Josh, most recently when we were together to discuss Vertigo, it was cool that I was back home in Canada. We had a chance to do that one in person together. And now that I'm back in Scotland, yeah, now that I'm back in Scotland, um, we've got an ocean between us, but that didn't stop Joe McGrady. It did not. So maybe we could solve a homicide case as well. Well, I'm, I'm dressed like a Honolulu police department inspector <laughs> more like uh, hawaii 50 more so than uh, joe mcgrady's time <laughs> <laughs> true enough you're right you're right we broke out the hawaiian shirts in honor of uh, joe mcgrady today didn't we sorry had to it's a catchy song is, Even yeah. like that remake series, like I remember watching the first couple episodes just to see what it was like, and that song got me jazzed when I was watching it. But then <laughs> it just wasn't as good as like the original show with uh, with our boy Jack Lord. Yeah, Jack Lord, the original Felix Leiter. That's right. Well, there are there are some Felix Leiter type characters in this story, Josh. Um, maybe we should say just as a starting point that Five Decembers by James Kestrel. It was published by Hard Case Crime in 2021. So this is a very fresh book. And it won yep. that year's Edgar Award for Best Novel. Yes. So uh, we're looking forward to talking about the ins and outs of that. This was a book that I picked up on a whim because I saw it on the yes. shelves. And I and I just thought, this, this looks really good. I hadn't read a detective story from the 1940s, at least set so precipitously at the time of war and i thought this yes. might be really cool i thought it was really neat to give it a shot and i'm glad that you're you're here to do that with me absolutely it was a great choice well buddy um i was going to say it's quite prescient really because right now my son has uh, this affinity with warplanes i guess lots of kids go through this um, <laughs> but he's really fixated on like you know, Pacific Theater. He's only four years old, right? But he loves the Japanese Zeros. He loves the F4 Corsairs and the P-51 Mustangs. And as I was <laughs> reading the book in whatever moments I could steal throughout the day, uh, you know, he's he's flying these planes around and his papa buys him all these die-cast models. And it, it, it's quite cool to kind of have the, you know, the facsimile models of some of the planes that are 
wreaking havoc on both Allied and Axis powers here as, as the book goes through. Mm-hmm. But I, I thought that was quite interesting, you know. And uh, I remember when I was in Canada, you had quite a big book as well on. Um, you had quite a big book on warplanes, if I'm not mistaken. And I came home and oh, got yeah, the one, one that got an encyclopedia. The, yeah. Oh, did you? Yeah, I did. It's um, mine. That's mine here. I know nobody can see this, but uh, warplanes of World War Two, very similar to yours. Yeah, absolutely. Does it give you like the cross ref- like the, the cross section drawings and stuff like that? Only for some of them, not for yours. Only for it's some. really more. Okay. It's more like um, it's more images and schematics, but not quite to the blueprinted cross section like yours. Like anyway, yeah. So, yeah. but there's a beauty, uh, you know. I think in the design of those aircrafts at the time, like I mean, yeah, they're for aerodynamic and practical purposes. But I find, you know. You look at, you know, I saw, for example, recently you watched like, you know, Top Gun Maverick and those F-18s are pretty awesome. Yeah, I agree. But there's just something about, you know, being inside like this small in this small tin can flying around. Now, I use the word tin can just as a way to describe the experience. If you look at a Spitfire, if you look at a Mustang, if you look at a Zero or even a Messerschmitt, you know, those are yeah. beautifully designed planes. They, they, they look mm-hmm. fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like old cars where just the designs back then were just a little more innovative and and curvy and in their own way and everything is now so like symmetrical these days you know it's just we kind of lost that uh ruggedness not yeah ruggedness but also no just that's like, not the right or, word is it that's not organic right like almost like hmm. organic organic kind of design would be a, yeah. it was a way I, that I know I, would, I know what I would, you mean I would, I would, yeah. I would describe it yeah. but also that's the manufacturing the too because people were People were donating yeah. their pots and pans to build Spitfires and Lancasters and stuff like that. You know, like, why are we going on about this? We're going into World War II because this book, Five Decembers, takes place on five Decembers from 1941 to 1945. So mm-hmm. uh, we're kind of, you know, that's where we are right now. We're dealing with a story that's set in World War II a story that the author wanted to set in this particular period uh, due to, you know, inspirations in his own life. Uh, the author, James Kestrel, his grandfather and his granduncle in the uh, European theater in World War II, they were in the U.S. Army and the U.S. Air Force. Uh, so, you know, he wanted to tell a story uh, that wasn't just a detective story, but he wanted to tell something that was epic and brought different cultures and... Uh, empire versus empire together all in the basis of yeah, a, yeah. all within the structure of a traditional detective story if you think about it mm-hmm. so uh yeah you know that this, this conversation is absolutely relevant and what's also relevant too is <laughs> as as i've been talking about on this on this show is i'm recently i've been very interested in the history of japan i'm currently reading um a book on it right now and uh i've just been kind of looking into like the Japanese involvement in the Second World War and, and learning about, you know, guys like Yamamoto and uh, uh, Tojo and, and just some of just like the naval battles during the Pacific Theater were, 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 were something else. And they still stand today in, as some of the most grand examples of naval combat since, you know, the Napoleonic era all the way back to, you know, like Battle of Salamis and whatnot, and, you know, back in the uh, 5th century B.C. So... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Josh, let me ask you, pal, just I guess as a preface before we get into the episode, uh, just a little preamble here. You and I got similar reading 
interests, but also different reading interests. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Have you well, ever you come balance. across? Have you have you read before a novel, a detective novel set within the world wars? Recently, we did Riddle of the Sands, which is like a you know a, a kind of premonitions of World War One, and yes, but they're not technically stories about no. crime in war. Um, have you ever read a detective story set during the war before, or is this a first for you too? Not a not a detective story during World War Two. No, I can't think of of, historical of anything fiction? in that. Uh, the historical fiction I probably read was um, I forget the author's name, but Atonement that was set during the Second World oh, War. Yeah. Ian McEwan. Ian McEwan. Ian McEwan. Yeah. So I I read that, and uh, but I haven't really read any. I think I read a Len, not, not a Len Dighton, a Jack Higgins book that was set during World mm-hmm. War Two. Mm-hmm. It's your very typical kind of like special operations executive spy slash action World War Two thriller kind of story. So yeah, this is it a, wasn't this like is a different read, isn't it? Yeah, it's a very different experience of World War Two that Kestrel has provided to us uh, and a different set of eyes to see it through. And I found that a very refreshing experience. But we'll get into that. Uh, once we get into the pipes of our review, so to speak. Um, but uh, no, I think outside of any other mystery novel, because I know that some Agatha Christie stuff does have World War II settings, if I'm not mistaken. But mm-hmm. I have not read myself like an actual detective story set during the Second World War. Yeah, no. well, this was a first for yeah. me. And many of our listeners are probably far better um, versed to speak about if if this is like a, a micro genre or a sub genre, you know, mm-hmm. probably is. But this is the first for me. But it's so very unique from that Pacific theater point of view, you know. And I, I found that really appealing because that's yeah. I, I just think growing up where we do on our side of the continent and being Canadians who didn't have a chief involvement. Uh, our families didn't have a chief involvement in the Pacific theater. There were certainly Canadians serving. Absolutely. One thing the book talks about is shortly after Pearl Harbor, because it was essentially it was a timed attack on not just uh, the U.S. at Pearl Harbor, but the Japanese also attacked key colonial installations on the Eastern Pacific Rim. So they attacked like Malaysia, they attacked Indonesia, they attacked Hong Kong. I mean, they were already in Manchuria, but the new territories that was held by the British around Hong Kong, they could not touch that until, you know, they were declaring war against uh the Allied powers, and that began with the attack on Pearl Harbor. And the main reason why the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor is due to the sanctions that Roosevelt placed on um, on, on Japan, telling them that you can't invade Manchuria, you can't invade China and do this, you're not allowed to do this. And Japan, which was basically at that point post-Depression, controlled by a, a very strong nationalism, um, mostly led by this guy Tojo, uh, who was, he wasn't prime minister at the time, but he was definitely a a very powerful figure he was he was very much for japan you know his father was like a samurai uh japan had this notion that they were they deserved to be a world power they defeated the russians uh way back in the early 1900s and that gave them you know like and that was one thing that Mm -hmm. a weakened the the czar's regime and let the doors open for the the revolution years later revolution yeah of course Mm-hmm. But Japan believed they had a they had a right to a stake in the world's power, and the U.S. and the other powers did not want them to get that oil, get that control. That's why they had sanctions, and they would have to rely on America giving them power. 
And then, so yeah. then you throw in the nationalist yeah. aspect and all that. And then finally the pact that Hitler and Hirohito, the emperor made. Mm -hmm. The well, emperor, yeah. Hiro, Hirohito and his, and his ministers anyways, because as we know, Hirohito- Yeah, I he was kind of hands off, yeah. Well, all the Japanese emperors are essentially figureheads. It's it's really all yeah. it goes always it goes back to you know the feudal Japan era, which only ended like in the 1860s. Was essentially the emperor was controlled by the shogun from from like the 13th century onwards, right? The emperor was just a figurehead. Even before then, the emperor was still a figurehead. They believed he was descended from like the sun goddess, uh, and and so he was to be protected at all costs and preserved and uh, to be, be as a figurehead. While, you know, the more the noble families and the shoguns eventually that came from that, they were the ones that controlled power, you know, controlled the country and everything. So essentially what happens is that the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor. Then they attack all of the, the British territorial possessions, the Dutch East Indies, uh, French Vietnam. Like they basically attacked everything that they could to get, gain a foothold. And the man who was responsible for... The attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, Isoroku Yamamoto, he was actually against attacking the U.S., but because the war party wanted it so much, he said, he said, all right, that's fine, but what we have to do is we have to take out the American uh, Pacific Fleet, which was stationed at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. And so by taking, it, by taking out Pearl Harbor, then they could go attack these other places, including Hong Kong, and establish a foothold as soon as they can. The problem with Pearl Harbor for the Japanese was all the carriers were out at sea at the time. Yes, the Arizona sunk and, uh, and there was a lot of terrible damage and death and destruction that occurred from Pearl Harbor. And it, you know, it was, it was terrible, but it also galvanized the American public. It gave Roosevelt, who was always pro-war against Hitler and the Axis powers. He had so much isolationist, um, figures in his government, there was a strong part of America that wanted to keep out of the war. And Roosevelt always wanted to be into it because he knew the Axis powers would do something. And so Pearl Harbor was kind of like, that's it. There's no more obstacles. Those who were on the fence, they signed up for war. Winston Churchill went to bed and he's like, well, we did win after all. And that was right after Pearl Harbor because he knew mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. once the Americans, I don't want to put down, you know, the Canadian, the British, or the French's participation in the Second World War because they were critical. The British were absolutely critical in the resolution of the of, of the Second World War. But we can't deny how much the American involvement turned the tide. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. 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 I don't think many and, I don't think many would. I mean war war yeah. is made up of so many different little battles, each themselves of, of great importance. You know, you could talk yeah. about the Blitz and you could talk about how Operation Sea Lion wasn't able to happen yeah. because the RAF yes. won the war in the skies and had Hitler done a an invasion of, um, of the United Kingdom, which is what he was planning, then the whole face of Europe would have changed. There would have been no stop. But eventually, America would have... Would have I think would have turned the tide, you know, really would have. And Josh, I can only speak for myself growing up in the east of Canada and obviously our family's roots, which are very much tied to the Western theater, you know, Western European yes. theater. Uh, we don't learn a lot about the Pacific theaters. We don't learn a lot about mm -hmm. uh, about about Guam, about Guadalcanal. You don't grow up learning a lot about Midway. You Like, I'm sure if we grew up on the... 
Pacific Coast, California, maybe even Vancouver, further north in Canada, you might learn that, which has the Chinese and the Japanese, Japanese. immigration patterns, absolutely, and the prisoner oh, of war oh, camps and all of that. Yeah, but yeah. We, as a rule, and even over here in really? Scotland, I, I can tell you that the Pacific theater is not the theater that is that's most most prevalent because we are only mm-hmm. a stone's throw from Belgium. We're only a stone's throw from Ypres and from you know, Vimy and from all of these places that were such instrumental locations in the Great War. And of course, the beaches of Normandy are only, you know, a hop, skip and a jump away. So I, I think I think we are we're given a lot more information on the Western theater. But depending yeah, on where you true. grow up, it, it probably changes, doesn't it? It, ab- it absolutely does. I think the Pacific War is very much like even though the Americans took place, you know, after Pearl Harbor, they went to North Africa. They were part of Operation Torch and the liberation of Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know yep. that Patton was involved with that. You know, we know his and the Sicily oh, yeah. and Italy. Yeah. And then we have, of course, the Normandy invasion. We know, you know, the United States was always involved in that. But uh-huh. their personal yeah. war in the it was in the Pacific because that was absolutely, yeah. you, you know, that was they didn't join up with many people them. there. They were their own things. Yeah. And it was galvanized, as you say, by this ruthless attack on Pearl Harbor, which, circling back to the beginning of our story for the purposes of our listeners, that is what (laughs) starts. That's kind of like a a linchpin moment in this narrative. So um, after after a long, long, comfortable conversation getting us started on this episode, we'd like to welcome everybody once again. Thanks for tuning in to Lighting the Pipes. We hope you enjoy our discussion and review of Five Decembers by James Kestrel. Now, Josh has gone away and done some fast facts on the author and the publication of the text. Going to learn a little bit about Kestrel before he was Kestrel. And then we'll follow that up with about a 20-minute detailed plot summary that I've uh, got set up for you. And then we'll do our pipes as normal. So we hope you enjoy the show. So most of my research on James Kestrel, uh, the majority of the facts that I gleaned came from a really good podcast, uh, the Writing Community Chat Show. Uh, They did an episode interviewing James Kestrel uh, regarding Five Decembers. Uh, They also talked about hard case crime and its contribution to the mystery genre uh, in the past, you know, couple of years and whatnot, and uh, how its founder is basically publisher and editor, uh, one guy doing all these things, for the love for his love of mystery novels and probably, you know, the bottom line as well. <laughs> he can make them a living. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, but yeah. James Kestrel is happily involved in that. And uh, he wasn't always James Kestrel, though. And I kind of feel after listening to the podcast I'm talk- and listening to James talk about, you know, his life and his experiences, I kind of feel a little weird kind of outing him. But in this fashion, uh, and, uh, you know, what I mean essentially is, is that, you know, James Kestrel is a pseudonym. Uh, mm, the same as uh, Bachman for Stephen King. Yeah. Yeah, or anyone exactly. else who uses a pseudonym. There are hundreds of them, of course. Yeah. Now, his background uh, before he did Five Decembers, um, as when he was when he when he's writing as Jonathan Moore, I, I believe that is his real name. Uh, I could be another pseudonym. I'm not sure exactly, but he publishes Jonathan Moore. Uh, he he wrote he started out writing horror novels, uh, and the ones that he published, I think the first one was in 2013. Um, yeah, 2013, he published his first novel, Redheads, and that was followed by Close Reach in 2014, and The Poison Artist in 2016, The Night Market in 2018, and Blood Relations in 2019. And these are all horror novels. 
his debut novel, Redheads, actually was nominated for the Bram Stoker Award. Now, Very cool. you know, we have the Edgar Award for the mystery novel. So obviously the Bram Stoker is the perfect name to pick for the prestige, you know, horror writing award. Um, outside of the podcast, I had to put together my research to find out more about him because there's no Wikipedia entry on Jonathan Moore or James Kestrel. But there is a couple of like websites you can go to, you know, some, some literary websites, mystery novel websites, and the information bounces back and forth. Like I started out getting information that he was born in, in Stanford, Connecticut, but that's not true. Uh, he was actually born in <laughs> California in, in Palo Alto. Maybe he's been like spreading, like as his pseudonym, he's been spreading different things around yeah. him. I, I don't know. Spinning tales, but his father was a university professor. Uh, which took him to Austin, Texas, where his, and then eventually he was up in Michigan, where he where he did his high school years, and then after that, he went back to went back to California and Los Angeles, and he took a, a, a course in Los Angeles, I believe, uh, for creative writing, and apparently this was not a very prestigious school, but hmm. he was, I guess, snookered into it, and so he got his degree, and he found out in the United States that it was worthless, but. If you want to teach, say, in Taiwan, um, all you need is an English degree. So mm-hmm. he got That's an opportunity right. yeah. to to live in Taiwan for three years, uh, teaching kindergarten, essentially, uh, where he also opened a bar. Uh, when he returned to the United States, he attended law school in New Orleans and worked as an investigator as a, for an attorney in Washington, D.C. Uh, he also worked as a tour guide, whitewater rafting on the Rio Grande, and also in a delinquent youth wilderness camp. He was a counselor there. He was also a textbook editor and an English teacher. All these odd jobs that he had while he was supporting his four years in uh, university in, well, in law school in New Orleans. So he came out of that, and that eventually got him a job in Honolulu as an attorney. And his work in Honolulu uh, gave him access to many things. Like he was able to get access to like the local forensics or he could go into the medical examiner's office uh that probably helped him with his research like the first book i think he did redheads i believe that had to do with yeah. like drowning victims and whatnot so he was okay. able to get information and his experience on there on the podcast yeah. he was saying how like it's not like now these are my words it's not like the x-files where you have scully like in her with all like these precise surgical instruments used to to perform an autopsy instead he said, like, sometimes it's so primitive that they use, like, garden shears to, like, open mm-hmm. up the chest cavities of the, of wow, the, yeah, yeah. Uh, of the bodies. So and that is a good point. Show... That, that, that is an important <laughs> point, I think, because there are a couple of autopsy scenes in this book which feel as though they're written with deft experience or at least yes. n- not just leaning towards the grotesque, which, which they are. And we might, I guess, get that out here uh, just before we get into our review and, and spoilers. There's a lot of graphic um, content in this book, which yeah. we will be discussing throughout the course of this episode. So if you got this on in the background of your your kitchen cooking or something, and you got little ones running around, I, you know, maybe a good idea to wait this one till later because we're going to be talking about <laughs> some pretty pretty horrendous stuff here, particularly when we get into the summary and the description of the murders and and what you're saying about uh, Moore's experience with these autopsies it just hits the target with with what i kind of um well it makes sense to me i guess is what i mean you know oh yeah absolutely so eventually in honolulu he, he as i said he 
takes on on the lawyer profession. Um, he's married. He has kids there. Um, that's essentially what he's been doing since then and working on his horror novels up until 2019. And then he started working on what he wanted to do all the way back in his in his childhood. When he was in middle school, uh, that's when he really wanted to get into writing. And that's because he bought a copy of his of his uh, of his father's Stephen King's It. And he was just so compelled by that story and so immersed into it that, that he wanted to become a writer after that. So that was his big inspiration. And now that's why I think he went right into horror because he said he's always been interested in, in, into dark, kind of dark stories and, and whatnot, outside of also being really interested in, in history. And as I said, his, his, uh, great, his, his grandfather and his granduncle, they served in World War II. So he, they always had great stories for him, um, fascinating stories, intriguing stories about that period of history. So that's always inspired him too. So you can see where those two influences are. Mm-hmm. they're merging together because if you think about it think of the opening of five decembers and just how graphic like the murder scene was was shown it's, it's it's almost a mix of like i can see horror there's a bit of like thomas harris in there as well um that's an author that we haven't covered on the show yet but i mean if you've ever seen anything involving hannibal lecter you know exactly what i'm talking about um yeah 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 like the way that he was strung up reminded me of you know the, the famous scene in silence of the lambs with the um uh, with the with the security guard, right? Like with that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. almost like a, uh, a a Viking blood eagle presentation. You know, it was uh, quite graphic, and that goes into the horror writing. I'm I'm sure. Now, as a lawyer in Honolulu, his work took him, especially one case before he started writing uh, Five Decembers. It took him to Tokyo and into Hong Kong, where he walked around and he just like delved into the culture and you also add on to his three years in Taiwan where he learned a bit of Chinese and now he's, he's making friends and acquaintances in Tokyo and in Hong Kong. He's learning these environments quite well. Um, he says in the podcast that living in Hawaii, it, it's not just beautiful, but it, he, he loves the idea. And I'm not trying to make any kind of political statement. I'm not trying to push any buttons here or anything like that. But Kestrel says he is, as a white person, a Caucasian, he is a, a minority in Hawaii, just as he is mm-hmm. in Hong Kong and in Tokyo. And he feels that that's what makes their civilizations living there more interesting and more organized. And he just says that sometimes there's nothing wrong with white people or Caucasian or that attitude, even though, you know, there are many people who say, well, that's where the colonial imperialist mindset comes from, is from, you know, Caucasians, because that's how it was in the past. But it's almost like adding too much salt, he says, you know, to you want to have a balance of everything is it's really what he describes it as. So I see, I immediately got from the podcast, from the interview that Jonathan Moore slash James Kestrel is a very cosmopolitan individual. He believes in cultural um, diversity. He believes in the exploration of other cultures and, 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 and learning new cultures and being very open-minded. So I, I found that, you know, that was an interesting uh, take of what of what the man is. And then I think that mm-hmm. definitely informs his writing, too. And I think it's an oh, important yeah. point. Yeah. Um, have fun editing all of that, by the way. Uh, yeah. Fuck. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Fuck you. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm really sorry about that. Um, but basically, his legal cases took him from Hong Kong to Tokyo. He loved the mystery and the horror genre. So he wanted to put that into his story. But he also wanted to honor you know, that old tradition of the Second World War and the and the whole Pacific theater and, and also play on the cultural experiences that he had already and want to tell a big epic story. 
And that's basically what he did. In terms of the publication of Five Decembers, he knew the publisher knew that they had something there. What what happened with it, it was really interesting, is that his other books, even though he was nominated for a Bram Stoker, they weren't big sellers. So they they basically changed his name as a as a way to get it through the screening so that you know they would take yeah, a chance on it. wouldn't be judged by his previous his previous works, yeah. Exactly. So that's how it mm-hmm. got published and by Hard Case and eventually, you know, that's how it became the Edgar Award-winning novel of 2022. So yeah. So that's all I really got on James Kestrel. Um I hope that was uh informative enough. I couldn't get the quite fast facts as I always do, a bit more informative on their career and writing style, but I think 5 December's writing style speaks for himself what James Kestrel mm-hmm. is all about. And we'll get into that when we do our pipes. But uh, just one last time, Josh, uh, what's that podcast again? Because it was good and we'd like to share that with others. So once they finish listening to our review, if you want to hear James Kestrel himself talk about his life and career. Yeah, Christopher Agate or Agate, he is the uh, show, he's a showrunner and it's called the Writing Community Chat Show. Superb. Right. So check that out, guys. You'll enjoy it. Yeah. On, on the web, it's uh, the writing community chat show.com and you can download it wherever you download fine podcasts. Superb. Well, why don't we load up our F4 Corsairs, Josh, and fly right into a plot summary. Now, I've gone through the story about 20 minutes or so, I think, will do us fine. Lots of detail here. For those of you who have read the book recently, you probably won't need it. For those of you who read it when it came out, you might benefit from it. Or if you just want to hear uh, a play-by-play on 5 Decembers. If not, we'll get you on the other side about 20 minutes from now. It's late November 1941 in a Honolulu bar. Historically, we're just a couple of weeks away from a turning point in American and World War history. But for former army serviceman turned police detective Joe McGrady, it's just another night. He's just clocked out and is looking to tie one on when a call from his super, the disgruntled Captain Beamer, kills his buzz flat and issues an order that lays the foundation for all action in the story to come. There's been a murder, and Chief Gabrielson is putting Joe in charge, much to Beamer's discontent. Not exactly down the road, but it's dark where he reaches the scene. In an equipment shed on a farm belonging to a local dairyman, Reginald Faithful, a male body has been discovered by a farmhand, hung up high and mutilated on a spreader bar. McGrady leaves the scene briefly to call in some details and returns to find a trigger-happy clean-up man carrying a saw and gasoline on the dark road, approaching the shed to, well, clean up the mess. Who sent him? Was he the killer? McGrady doesn't get a chance to ask. He's forced to shoot the guy dead when he comes under immediate fire himself. Now, the shooting is called in and backup shortly arrives with a forensic team, or what passed for one in early 40s rural Hawaii. 
A closer look in the shed, this time with an old sergeant, Kondo, reveals a second body, that of a young Asian woman, naked, bound, and crumpled under a pile of dirty blankets and old clothes. She, too, had been mutilated, but not in quite the same way. She'd been forced to watch the near evisceration of victim number one. The identity of the cleanup man is also of importance, so he, too, gets shipped off for an autopsy. Was he working alone? Experience-hardened instincts would suggest otherwise to McGrady, but he holds this other man theory to himself for the time being. McGrady gets the feeling his long night just got a day and a half longer, so he calls his girlfriend, Molly, and leaves a message. He'll try to get there for dinner tomorrow night. It's Thanksgiving, after all. Captain Beamer is a benzedrine-addicted grump, keen to find fault with McGrady and his work, but can't really act on his personal grudge as Joe is playing the case pretty straight. The coroner instructs the autopsies will be conducted by the army at Tripler Hospital. Though he's unhappy about the involvement, Beamer can't help it. He's outranked. The doctor who performs the autopsy, Colonel Underhill, knows his weaponry and draws McGrady's attentions to the wound on the boy first, made by Mark I trench knife. The ruthless World War I item is described as a double-edged dagger blade with a set of spiked brass knuckles for a handle. Beamer is distressed and anxious at the scene. The grisly weapon, the crunching of rigor mortis being reversed, the details of a crime reconstructed. They all take their toll and the frail captain passes out. He's seen to and the autopsies continue. When the boy's body is assessed, Underhill freezes momentarily and instructs his corporal to get Admiral Kimmel on the line immediately. McGrady asks what's going on, and the colonel nebulously explains that if the ID turned out to be correct, quote, he's just landed the biggest case in the territory, end quote. To make the identification, the admiral himself is needed. As they wait for his arrival, a nervous Underhill explains to McGrady that the admiral's nephew, Henry Kimmel Willard, 21 years old, went missing three days ago. He recognized the face from the photo he was given. The news of the disappearance hadn't yet been shared outside of the bases. Admiral Kimmel talks directly with McGrady and insists that he and Joe speak in private and stay connected through the investigation, points that irritate Beamer greatly as his detective is now answering to a bigger boss. At this stage, we, the reader, are still a little unclear why Beamer has so many issues with this case or with McGrady, but those answers are presented later. For now, he's just that grumpy trope, a captain past his best that likes to power and control smaller guys around him. We've seen the shows, we've read the stories, we go along with the stereotype. Among other things, Kimmel tells McGrady in private that his nephew was studying Japanese. As such, the fact that the girl who died nearby him was Asian fails to raise an eyebrow. Although the optics are bad, young American cavorting with a Japanese girl, the facts are what they are. McGrady confines in the Admiral that he thinks there was another killer or accomplice. Before leaving the base and the hospital, Colonel Underhill has one final surprise to share. In the leg of that trigger-happy clean-up man who McGrady was forced to ice out on the farm road, he found a U.S. Army bullet from way back in World War I. The wound was old and healed, but the bullet unmistakable. 
If it really was from the Great War, then there's a pretty good chance that this man was a German. At this point, Beamer forces a partner onto Joe, helping hands or spying eyes. Well, a bit of both, probably, but the man he selects, Fred Ball, isn't all that bad. He has impatient methods and a predisposition to aggressive leads, but he's a good hand in a fight, and Joe isn't as pissed about it as Beamer probably wants him to be. After a rather fruitless search, checking out Henry Willard's sparsely furnished rooms, Joe calls on his girlfriend Molly for a peaceable rest. Molly came to Hawaii as a student and met Joe after researching the Chinese Civil War nearly a decade ago, something that Joe had first-hand experience in. Though her roommates are more than tipsy when they arrive, Molly steadies herself easily, and both Joe and Fred tuck into a well-earned dinner. Joe is operating on an empty tank and is thankful for the quiet, loving embrace that follows supper and Fred's departure. Though they would meet again, Kestrel's foreshadowing is as somber as it is on the nose when he writes, It was one of the last private conversations they would ever have. McGrady and Ball do some small-scale work, chasing leads on two different cars, which, though failures in turning up much, at least enable some suppositions to be struck off the lists. But before long, McGrady is summoned once more by the Admiralty, who significantly raise the stakes. They meet in the office of John Kincaid, executive director of Alexander and Baldwin, a do-anything industrial firm with deep pockets and naval leanings. They tell McGrady that a third victim has shown up, a dead Marine, cut up and eviscerated in similar gory fashion to Kimmel's nephew on the island of Wake. Given the timescale of the killings in both locations, only one military flight fits a proper escape, but several Pan Am clippers moved between the islands, including one whose passenger ledger reveals a Mr. John Smith who boarded in Honolulu for Hong Kong, one way only. Fully understanding the precarious politics facing them both, Admiral Kimmel asks McGrady if he has ever been granted operational discretion before from a commanding officer. McGrady says that he has, and reading between the lines, we understand this to be as close to a double-O license as the Navy is going to offer. Kimmel trusts McGrady to read the situation and work as fast and productively as he can. Kincaid organizes to finance the operation so the Navy can be clear of involvement. And on top of the flights, he gives McGrady $500 in cash. That's all well and good, but John Smith already has a five-day jump on him. And just like that, Joe McGrady is Hong Kong bound on his own open return clipper flight, leaving Molly to wonder the what-ifs and himself to cast aside all fantasies of relaxation as he chases down the biggest case of his career. As the chess pieces of war move anxiously behind the scenes, Joe McGrady moves east at the Admiralty's behest. He stops first on Wake to investigate the killing. There, he sees the body, once animated by the life force of Private Vincent Russo, who, which confirms what he already suspected. With cooperation from the military, having friends in high places helps to bypass red tape, McGrady reconstructs Russo's last few hours and catches more breadcrumbs of John Smith's trail, ones which involve a pretty sketch artist named Emily Cam in Guam, who had a run-in with both the deceased and the suspected killer. 
Part two of the novel opens up in Hong Kong, where McGrady follows up on Emily Cam's story. His meeting with her results in a detailed story of friendliness mistaken and opportunities missed. Nothing of note happened between Cam and Vincent Russo, just some genial chatter and pleasant champagne. But John Smith looked dangerous skulking around and was predatory. McGrady asks Cam if she could sketch the man from memory, and she agrees to do so. Through a series of lucky strikes, McGrady tracks down Joe Smith to the Empire Hotel. A look at the register reveals that Smith paid for 10 days and is likely still there. But that's as far and as near as McGrady will get to bringing in John Smith. In his own hotel, the Peninsula, McGrady is abruptly arrested and forcibly taken from his room by Hong Kong police. He's marched into a police lineup and identified by a woman he's never seen before as being a culprit. It's a sham rape charge, and just like that, Detective Joe McGrady finds himself at the behest and accommodation of the Chinese police. Whoever this John Smith was, he had serious sway and wanted the tailing detective away for good. Nathan DeVries, a man from the American consulate, arrives, informing McGrady that there's not much he can do because he wasn't following official channels. He hadn't registered his interest with the Hong Kong police. DeVries considers offering the guard McGrady's bribe of $500 cash, but ultimately vetoes the idea. McGrady is despondent, but he knows that he left himself vulnerable by working on his own in a foreign country. The Japanese invade Pearl Harbor as Joe sits imprisoned. In a flash, multiple histories change drastically. Hong Kong is soon taken by Japanese, and McGrady becomes a prisoner of war. Rounded up together with other Americans, he's marched into formation around the harbor, destined for transport to a camp on Japanese soil. Before setting off, a chance encounter with Emily reveals that her father had been killed and soldiers have taken up residence in her home. She promises Joe to hold on to the sketch that she made of John Smith. For when? Who knows? But a promise is made. Joe gives Emily Kincaid's $500. She needs the money more than he does, especially where he's going. But fate has another card to play. McGrady's transport pulls in to Yokohama, and the marching begins. All prisoners fear the worst. Joe, however, is taken out of the lineup to meet with a man, one Takahashi Kansai, an employee with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Despite being deep in enemy territory, Joe is offered safe haven with Kansai and the promise of a full reveal once they get out of the barrack. He assures McGrady that he is on his side, he's a pacifist, and that his release is not official government business. Instead, it is family business. As they drive out of Yokohama, Takahashi explains that he knows who Joe is because he's been following the Honolulu papers after his niece disappeared. You see, his brother's only child, Takahashi Miyako, was the second murder victim. She had been working as a translator in the Japanese consulate in Honolulu, and the Kempetai, the military police, suspected she might be passing secrets on to the Americans. She and the Admiral's nephew had grown friendly, and somebody intervened to put a stop to it with a brutal, murderous punctuation mark back on Reginald Fairview's dairy farm. Kansai's offer of generosity and security is legitimate. 
he bought Joe McGrady's freedom away from the Japanese so that when the war ended, he could go back on the case and bring justice to the dishonor that struck his family the night Miyako was murdered. And so ends the first half of the novel. Five Decembers has so far been plot-rich with its foundation laying of characters and clues, but the novel now breaks for the war into character and thematic writing. As McGrady sinks into the quiet, enigmatic beauty of Japanese life, Kestrel hits the brakes on the murder investigation. Living with Takahashi Kansai and his daughter, Sachi, McGrady is forced to stay incognito and to learn and to appreciate Japanese ways. His movements are restricted to the house and the garden. Exposing himself unnecessarily would mean certain death and dishonor for his hosts. These 80 pages or so survey McGrady's growing respect for Takahashi and love for his daughter. The former is shared through several meaningful conversations and subtle gestures of faith. The latter is consummated in the heat of bombing and the American noose tightening around the Japanese Empire. Afraid for her life and traumatized by McGrady's necessary killing of a young Senpatai officer, Sachi leaves for her ancestral home in the mountains. Kansai returns and learns what happened. After the Emperor ordered the nation's surrender to America, ostensibly ending the conflict, the shackles upon McGrady loosen and he gets moving again. Before returning to America on the Missouri, he embraces Takahashi, confesses his love for his daughter, and promises to send word when he captures Miyako's killer. McGrady is a changed man. He has experienced the culture of a foreign place in the time of war. Back in Honolulu, after 1400 days in enemy territory, McGrady's return to his old life is not smooth. For all intents and purposes, the rest of the world took him for dead. Takahashi's release safeguarded his identity, but only by declaring it officially dead in custody. The reunion at work comes as a shock to everyone, Kondo, Beamer, and especially Ball, who only went and married Joe's girlfriend. But Molly's not really to blame. After learning of Joe's death, she leaned into Ball for support, and, well, the rest is predictably enough written. She visits Joe and offers herself again to him, but he refuses. Not so much for the sanctity of her relationship with Fred Ball, but more for his own dignity, and because she and Ball have a child together. Joe is angry at the world, but also understanding of it as it emerges from its wartime skin. His inner conflict is palpable in these chapters of homecoming. Eventually, his feelings get the better of him, and he attacks Ball at work during an interrogation. Partly for his ruthless ways, partly for his thoughtlessness, partly for Molly, and partly because he just feels like punching a guy. The act essentially signs his own release papers, of course, and Joe leaves Honolulu PD with the unsolved case files in hand. Now off the force, his attention turns to picking up the trail of John Smith. The denouement of the story now moves fast. Joe works the case alone, driven by a sense of duty and promise, tenacious to the last. He follows threads that were left hanging in the air back when Pearl Harbor was bombed. One of these introduces him to Kate, a call girl who worked for a local pimp, Danny Boy, 
and helped set up other girls for his guests, friends, and business partners. Kate brings McGrady to speak with Dorothy, a traumatized and mentally unstable young woman who was sent by Danny Boy to a location during the time of the farm shed murders to entertain a man matching John Smith's description. It takes some sleuthing, but Joe tracks down this particular property and hits the jackpot. Not only is it full of Nazi propaganda, but it's also owned by Captain Beamer, a rough little second property hidden outside of Honolulu. This eventually brings Ball back into the fold because Joe knows that he's going to need backup if he's going to take Beamer down and progress with the case. They bury the hatchet and together confront Beamer in his house and end up shooting him dead when the interrogation goes pear-shaped. Kestrel's prose speeds up even more as Joe uncovers Beamer's pre-war communications, which lead him back east across the Pacific. He tracks Joe Smith down to Hong Kong once more through telegram carbons. By renting out a hotel room overlooking the Golden Phoenix Transshipping Office, Smith's business front, McGrady is able to cast his net. The target is near. Last time he pursued Smith to Hong Kong, Smith manufactured his arrest. This time, the killer's advantage isn't so great. McGrady's work leads him to the American consulate, where Nathan DeVries re-enters the story. Working for him, doing archival work and communications in a dark back room, is none other than Joe Smith himself, posing as a Dutchman. According to DeVries, Jan has a British mother and he's been in Hong Kong forever. It takes a lot for McGrady to keep his cool and to turn his back on Smith without acting, but he knows he has to play this differently, cautiously, if the deaths are to be avenged and Takahashi's honor restored. Joe knows it'll be a showdown and is prepared for one, bringing along his own acquired trench knife. If he gets the final strike, he's going to make it count. For the victims, for Kansai, for himself, and, more generally, for all who hate the evil, brutality, and cowardness represented by the Nazi flag. Joe follows Smith, after his work, through Hong Kong streets, to a little shed on a mansion property built back up on one of the city's hills. Preamble, tension, chat, it's all popping off the page here like a sharpened prizefighter's pre-bout script. The inevitable shootout ensues, and Joe gets the upper hand when DeVries arrives, taking the reader and Smith by surprise. Joe guts John Smith with the same model trench knife he used in his Honolulu murder at the farm, the episode that started it all. From shed to shed, knife to knife, Smith's killing has come full circle, gut to gut. DeVries survives, and McGrady heads north for Japan. It's cold and snowing when he arrives, it's December, after all. But with nothing left back home in America to draw him, he moves with a singular purpose towards the only warmth remaining, the only hope of peace, the village of Nozawansan and Takahashi Sachi. It's a desperate slog for Joe, stopping only once for hot tea. He's underdressed and ill-prepared for a winter hike, particularly at night, but he makes it, just... Sachi opens the door after hearing his faint knock. He falls at her feet, and the story, Five Decembers, ends in hope and with the thawing relief of Takahashi's ancestral home and its hot springs. 
right. Another great summary by Mr. Powell. Uh, great job, Thanks, buddy. Great job. I was just going to say that um, I really liked the effect at the beginning with the airplanes flying over. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You, yeah. you, you, you said me mood. geeking out a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you said you set the mood well. Good. Well, Josh, um, it's hardly necessary, but I always say it's hardly necessary, and then we do it anyway. Our pipes is an acronym. And we use it for scoring all of the stories we read. How do we understand this acronym? Well, as I have said many times, uh, because you ask me every time, <laughs> uh, is P is for principal, I is for investigation, P is for perpetrator, E is for environs, and S is for supporting cast, supporting characters. Excellent. And we give those categories a mark out of five with which mm -hmm. we score our story and get a total index. We've had some good scoring stories on the podcast recently. In fact, we tend to select books we think we're going to like because that's, you know, it's not always the way it turns out. But, you know, we, we try to find books that ourselves and our listeners would like. And uh, I think we managed to do that again here today because uh, I think we both enjoyed the process of reading Five Decembers, how much and how deserving we think it is of the Edgar Award. We can talk about that. But yes, yes as you say, the P is our five mark category for principles. And let's get cracking away talking about Joe McGrady. Now, before you do that, I'll give you first word on Joe I would like to say I've also considered Takahashi Kansai as a principal character. The reason is because of how important his, and I suppose his daughter's, roles in the story are to motivate the principal character, the protagonist, further on. I, I don't think that there would be a second half of the book if Takahashi Kansai did not inspire and kind of... Um, engage okay. with Joe. So um, I, I don't think it's going to affect the scoring much. I'll, I'll explain as I go. But yeah, just to say I have looked at both of them kind of as principles. But yes, certainly Joe McGrady, Detective Joe McGrady is the principal for all intents and purposes. Okay. Well, I didn't take that tactic. Uh, I, I think Takahashi-san was a very interesting character. I liked him a lot. And um, I relegated him to the supporting cast, however, but even mm -hmm. so, sure. and and I I mean underline supporting because that's what his character was, and I'm not saying that just not just a functional role, but in a thematic role as well when it comes mm -hmm. to the story. Mm -hmm. So all the supporting characters are pivotal, but we're talking about the principal right now, our main character, uh, which is how I viewed it, anyways, is our yep. Yep. detective Joe McGrady. So just some, uh, just kind of a sort of a character sketch of Joe. So comes from a naval family. Uh, but he rebelled against this by going into college. Uh, so we already know from that point that he was sort of a, uh, even though he, he, he's a patriot and he, and he's part of, he wants to be part of something. He's also has his own, he's, he's also a survivor and is, and, uh, someone who likes his independence uh, is, is a word that I could say. So he's a team player, but he also has an open mind. And that's kind of where that background to me makes a lot of sense. And then even sure. after college, which didn't work out for him, he didn't go back to the Navy as like the backup uh, that his father would probably expect him to do. Instead, uh -huh. he, he goes, he joins the army. And so even though despite he's still part of, you know, the overall military industrial machine of the United States, 
he's not conforming to the ideals that were set on him. He's still going his own path. So even though he's in the U.S. Army, it's still that allowed him to also do a lot of traveling uh, in the Eastern Pacific uh, in terms of you know where he ended up. So this eventually led to a career in law enforcement, and this put him on the beat for a couple of years as in Honolulu, uh, where again he developed a. Uh, how can we put this? He developed a, I think the cosmopolitan. Uh, a cultured. A cultured perspective on things. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't think they quite clarify what division he is a detective of, but he is just working as a detective for the, for, as, a, as a detective for the Honolulu Police Department. Joe McGrady, to me, he comes off as, as we mentioned, cultured and open-minded. Uh, just for his, like, you know, we get the scene with him and Fred Ball, and Fred Ball calls it clotted blood uh, soup or something like that, right? Where, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, you know, he's very sort of, like, xenophobic about it, whereas Joe is, you know, he's used to it. He embraces that kind of thing. Uh, poor example. Uh, and and he's chivalrous. Uh, when it comes to, to women, you don't really get kind of a sexism from him at all. He lets them do their own thing, like... You know, he's open-minded when it comes to women, it's particularly of that time. So he's very liberally minded, even though he is from, from a very conformist background, you know, military and police officer, you know, but he's still open-minded. And that's kind of the presentation that uh, Kestrel is giving us. So in that sense, he's a very believably written military man turned policeman. He uses the skills that he learned in life uh, in this story, 100%, particularly like in how he survives his ordeal in Hong Kong all the way to Tokyo. Uh, He uses that mindset. And, you know, but at the same time, as I said, he's not a conformist. He's his own man in his own way. Uh, So this is the, the presentation of a character that I got from about Joe McGrady. He sort of reminds me of um, Jack Reacher, who, but but a Jack Reacher who decided to become a detective and work within the system instead of being a drifter, which is what Jack Reacher is. But Jack mm. Reacher, like Joe McGrady, is a badass. You know, he has military training. He can do these badass moves and survive these great ordeals. But at the same time, he works within the system. So uh, that to me is Joe McGrady in a, in a nutshell. Uh, that's the best way I can describe him, him as a principal, as a character. So... I think that James Kestrel did a great job in presenting this character to us. Uh, he was very believable. And he, all the stuff that happened in the story, like you weren't really questioning any, anything that he was doing in terms of how he could survive this or how he could f- figure this out. Like you got a good idea that he's a good detective. He's very observant. He's very open-minded. So he can put clues together and figure things out. He's not perfect uh, in terms of like, you know, he could be a bit jealous. He can be a bit, uh, he has a temper, but he holds it in well and he controls himself the best way that he can. Um, In terms of his character, I think the one thing that lacked for me in the story was we don't get a lot of his headspace. And this is mainly because it's written in a third person, not the first person, like uh, Chandler, for example. And that, to me, was particularly detrimental in the Japanese mm-hmm. section of the story, where we skip a couple of years, and then this whole time, you know, he's pining for one character, and when he realizes that person thinks he's dead, he moves on. And while that's believable, given, you know, how much Sashi has been in his life, to me, it, I felt like we needed, like, a couple of hundred pages in there just to kind of 
emphasize more about his experience in Japan and his relationship with Sashi. So how he could move on from Molly so easily after, you know, hearing that, that she's dead. Everything else though, I found like the writer did a good job of subtly conveying from a first, from a third person perspective, how Joe reacted to the world and how, uh, reacted to the world and to the, you know, to the world around him, to the investigation. Um, he made him as three-dimensional as he possibly could for a character that could easily have been just this badass Mary Sue figure. Uh, he gave them a, a bit more depth than, than some, uh, than some uh, other writers wouldn't. They would just let him be the badass, almost a surrogate author insert, sorry, almost as an author insert figure, or even as a mm-hmm. surrogate audience figure to see the plot through. And I found that Kestrel did a good job of putting Joe just above that, but I still felt that we needed a little more into his way of thinking and to his consciousness uh, for things to have stronger impact in the story. And that's kind of the only real negative that I, I got from the writing of his character. Overall, though, I think that James Kestrel did a great job and I would like to see further adventures of Joe McGrady post-war. I don't know if we are going to get that, but as a character... I think it's 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 one that I think on the page uh, falls just a little short of greatness for me. But I can see, you know, in an adaptation or something along those lines where someone could put depth by just into his character just through the performance itself. And that's when I think, you know, a couple hundred pages or 50 to 100 pages could have been useful in kind of fleshing them out just a little bit for me, just kind of filling in little gaps, policy, like just sanding things down just a little bit more, just so that, so, so that I wouldn't always see him as someone who is above the narrative that we're just following along, that we're just following. But at the same mm-hmm. time, we're still rooting along. We're still <clears throat> rooting for him as we go. And uh, that's just what I wanted a little bit more out of the principle. But overall, I gave uh, Joe McGrady a four out of five. Okay. All right. Well, I agree with you on some of the points that you raised. I was listening very carefully because I was curious about whether you would touch on that sort of uh, emotional vacancy in the writing. And you referred to it more as headspace. I think that's the expression you used. And for me, there was an emotional vacancy there with Joe McGrady. Um, We don't learn a lot about Joe's family or his motives in this story. He starts as a hard-nosed cop. Right, which is exactly right, as you say. Uh, we have to figure out his moral compass as the story goes, which is also good. You know, you don't want to be told heavy exposition or you know the characterization to be flat out there on the page for you. And yep. then, of course, you know, there's there's nothing like a war to reveal one's true character, right? Uh-huh. But I suppose in terms of family, we do get bits of his kid brother Tom, but there's not a lot mm. about his family or. No. After losing his parents, how things really turned out. Like this could have been worked over a wee bit more, I think. But mm-hmm. it's not a major weak. It's not a major weakness. So I'm I'm only docking it a little bit. It doesn't detract much from my overall enjoyment of him. But some of his motivations and dedications, I think, could have been revealed with just a little more backstory. And mm-hmm. like if it's if it's important enough to reference this picture of his kid brother three times and to have it saved in a box, like we need to know more about the kid brother. Why are you putting that in there, Kestrel, if you don't want us to ask questions about his family, right? Mm-hmm. And they're never exactly. really answered. Like I also feel, Josh, that uh, I feel like Kestrel plants frailty into Joe 
at the start of the book, which completely disappears without incident as the story goes on. I'm going to draw your attention to a section um, at the start of the book during the first murder scene, so to speak, or the crime scene. And Mm -hmm. this is what Kestrel writes as he's looking over the body. The truth was, McGrady had looked at the body for maybe 10 seconds, holding a shaking flashlight against the dark. The guy could have had words carved into his back, entire paragraphs with names and addresses, and he wouldn't have seen it. So this idea of him being frightened as he's looking at the body, holding this shaking flashlight in the dark, you think about the scene where he's imprisoned in Hong Kong, just as the Japanese are occupying and taking over and killing all these people around him. There is no sense of his frailty there. He's just kind of waiting, looking, observing. And why does Kestrel give us these these initial scenes or kind of vibrations of a character who, who's got like, not, P, not PTSD, just normal anxious reactions to what he's seen. But why give us that if he's so steely cool everywhere else in the book? Like mm-hmm. that disappears a bit and he just becomes a tough figure. And the vulnerability, I guess, is the best word to use. The vulnerability just completely disappears without mention out of Joe. Emotionally, we see him mm-hmm. vulnerable and suffering when it comes to um, you know, Sachi and Molly and all of that stuff. I am not saying he's not vulnerable in the emotional landscape, but no. in terms of him as a police detective, seeing things that are scary and gruesome, that completely goes out. And I don't really yeah. know why, like why bother setting it up in the first place. If you just want him to be hard nosed, tough, that's okay. Make him hard nosed, yeah. tough. But why, why have a scene where he's got a flashlight that's shaking at the start? If he, if he's just going to become a, you know a pretty incredibly strong figure yeah. you know he, he can take the, the whole west rest of the way you know like is queasiness part of his character okay that's cool that could be like a little foible he has you know kind of like how beamer passes out at the autopsy but yeah why I mean, did mcgrady pass yeah. out if mcgrady's shaking with his flashlight at the murder scene yeah, and, he's at, yeah. and he's in the autopsy room and this is one of his first cases as a detective i mean as a police officer on the beat he must have saw some shit obviously but sure, at the same yeah. time like it might be a significant authorial choice too, given Beamer's reveal near the end of the story, where the reason why mm-hmm. uh, Beamer faints in the in the Navy medical examiner's office is because of his involvement in that murder. Yes. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. You're right. and it is a minor nitpick, right? It was just something I noticed, but I do think yeah. getting back to something to support your own claim as well. It would have been interesting to explore more of his background in China, I think, during the Civil War in the 1930s, because that's the episode that Molly knows so well about him, because she interviews him for it. That's how they met. Now, I think that that could have helped to characterize him a little bit, not... Not maybe in a in a PTSD or a tormented way like a Harry Bosch or a John Rebus character, but mm-hmm. obviously it's it's a part of him that soldiering life that that gruesomeness it's a part of him. So if there is a relationship between the shaking flashlight and the war history and the things he saw while in China, then it'd be good to hear a little bit more of that, right? But yes. I don't know. Like, do, am I being too critical here? Would that have affected the pacing of the plot? Maybe, maybe if. Maybe if they had done that, if, if Kestrel had done that, it would have affected the pacing of the plot, which is something that I really did like. And that kind of, and, and maybe McGrady's action man trajectory, which we do kind of cheer for in the story, maybe that would have changed a bit as well had Kestrel given us 20 or 30 pages about 
him as a shaken soldier or something. I, I don't know. I just feel like maybe if they, if he didn't mention it at the start, I wouldn't be questioning it now at the end. No, I kind of agree. And remember too, in just a few moments after the, when he sees the murder and he goes back, he runs into the, the, the accomplice very similar. It reminded me a lot of the shootout between Marlo and Tonino, or sorry, Canino uh-huh. in Canino, the big yeah, sleep. Yeah. In the big sleep, mm-hmm. right? It was in the it was in the rain and whatnot. Because it's Hawaii. Behind the too, cars, I also, yeah. I also had visuals too of like Dennis Nedry in Jurassic Park, uh, which was <laughs> filmed in Hawaii. So it kind of reminded me of that a bit too. <laughs> okay, okay, sure. I, I don't know if Nedry was taking taking the uh, the little vials of embryo across the farm. But maybe Faithful's Farm, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe the sequel to this book is, you know, Faithful's Dairy Farm is Jurassic Park. It's it's the new location. That's true, but we got to remember too that Hawaii stood in for like a Costa Rican op- an island off the coast of Costa yeah. Rica, right? Yeah. So I got you. also yeah. different Hawaiian island too. That was Kaui. So mm-hmm. all right, well, listen, buddy. Um, so that's Joe McGrady. He's he is very fun to follow in the story. I like him, and the bits in the bits in Japan that are so influential to his transformation, uh, I appreciated perhaps a little bit more to you more than you did. I just like to say here why I feel Takahashi Kansai deserves consideration as a principal, even though on paper he is absolutely a supporting character, but. I think, while not a protagonist, he motivates the plot. He, uh, I mean, McGrady's allegiance to him is much stronger than it is to the Admiral, whose requests really represent the police work or the detective side of things in the first place. Like, if, if Kansai does not house and secure and provide for um, McGrady during these war years... Does the second half of the book ever happen? Would he just go back to Hawaii on on board the Missouri and be like, well, that was that. Like, if he was a prisoner of war, would he really want to just pick up those files and go back to this case? I don't think he would. Kansai's inner conflict as well is expertly portrayed throughout this book. He's only on page for, you know, six, seven scenes maybe. But as a pacifist, he's against the war, yet he finds himself a white collar in the Japanese foreign ministry. And he really moves. All of his scenes are written on this knife edge. And I found him really compelling. And the fact that his daughter, Sachi, and the kind of the love which eventually blossoms between herself and McGrady, I didn't find that trite. I didn't find that contrived. I found it very genuine. And I think that... If it wasn't for that experience, the second half of the novel, the investigation and the determination to re- return the honor to Takahashi's family, I don't think McGrady would have been motivated to do it. So I th- mm, I see them true. as more than I see them as more than just supporting par- characters in the story. I see them as central to McGrady and the reason he's he's there in the first place like this isn't james bond novel where you've got a bond girl he goes back to sleeping with at the end this is a woman who conceivably he's returning to because she represents as i think i said in the plot summary the only warmth he's got left in the world the only human warmth he's got he fought this crusade if we can call it that at the in the second half of the story for her and her father and and so i i i just wonder like maybe 
I, I just really like the characters. I found them believable and compelling and motivating for McGrady. Sachi is agreeably. She's sketched more thinly, okay? Particularly as she does become a love interest, but she is still rounded and she still has a commitment to him that pays off in the end. Mm-hmm. Like, I think they're more than just supporting characters because they don't just influence the second half. They they determine the second half of the book for McGrady and his life's quest upon return to Hawaii is doing right. Like Molly gives herself to Joe and says, I can leave Fred. Like, don't worry about my son. It'll be okay. And he's like, no, like he's done with Molly. It hurts and it's painful, but he's done with Molly. Like that first half is finished because of his experience with Takahashi and, um, and Sachi. I don't know. Do you think McGrady would have bothered with picking up this case again if he made it back to the USA via some other pathway, a prisoner of war camp or something? Because if you say yes to that, I agree then. No, that's the only reason why I think the middle section works to me. Well, I have my criticisms with the middle section. I found that like I wanted more page. I wanted more of him and Sashi. I wanted more of Takahashi for maybe 50 pages like in that. But but we're getting into the investigation part because we're getting into the writing mm-hmm. here. It's kind of dovetailing into that. But well, mm-hmm. but we're, we're here now because you're including these characters as well, principals. So, yeah. Let, well, I'll, so I'll give the so score. I'll just that, give the score. And yeah, for me to, I think, to view these as principles, I think I needed at least about 50 pages more of. Takahashi okay, and, okay. and Sashi, I would basically mm-hmm. divide the supporting cast into maybe like tiers in terms of importance and and their nature as pivotal okay. characters. Okay, in the story. well, sure. And I would definitely put obviously like if I'm taking about like let's just say if you if you were to cast the movie, I would say the main character the, the for lead billing is whoever plays Joe. Then. For me, the secondary, the then the second name to me would either be probably Takahashi or Sashi. Molly, I would have way down, not da- not too down, but mm-hmm. that would be a supporting character. But for like lead billing, I would have those three character, those three characters, absolutely. So if that answers yeah, your question okay. in terms of how I'm doing, <laughs> how I'm yeah. how how I view those characters, that's exactly it. I feel that without that middle section, the impetus for Joe in Hawaii. Uh, doesn't really it's not as strong as it would be dramatically in the story because I can see him on a whim and just for the sake of and just for the sake of you know that was the one thing that helped him through those years in while he was you know not in prison but where he was sequestered and for him to move on and th- and think about not think about you know the pain of not being with Molly and wondering you know how she's doing and and worrying it was she killed in Pearl? Was she killed at Pearl Harbor? I mean, what you know, like he doesn't know. He's only dreaming yeah, yeah. about. He's only you know he has his worries and his fears and anxieties. And I guess I just mm-hmm. wanted a bit more of that in the store story. And I think and that would also give us an opportunity to have more of Takahashi's situation and um, and Sashi. And to me, I think that that section would have been a way to bring those characters in that would have been a good opportunity somehow for Kestrel to leave Joe at the house. And then we follow uh, Takahashi to the ministry and then how he deals with like his subordinates and keeps a straight face while doing all this work for the foreign ministry. Yeah. So I think it was an opportunity. It was a missed opportunity there, in my opinion. 
uh, it still works overall okay. in the novel. Like even if they jump ahead and it gets to where it is, it still works thematically 100% and doesn't really detract too much from the power of the story. But I'm just saying is that it could have been much more powerful and much more epic in scale than Kestrel realizes, in my opinion. Okay, cool. Well, I will probably keep Kansai in my principles category just because of how important I think he is to the principle and the plot. But I, I'm not, I mean, I was hesitant about it in the first place. I agree that in terms of his quotient of paper, he belongs in the secondary characters, the supporting cast. But um, yeah, anyway, I don't know. I went for four and a half here in this category because although I had my problems with Joe, and I did have my problems with Joe, uh, I I didn't have too many. And I remember you and I were talking before we recorded about um, needing to justify a, a five or a perfect mark and acknowledging the fact that, you know, a, a perfect mark in our rankings for a book like this might not be the same for a book like Graham Greene or a book like Stephen mm. King. Like it is, true, it true. is subject to that particular book itself. And so although there were niggly bits, I didn't really have a lot to pick out with Joe. I thought he was rich. I thought he was deeply written. I thought he was um, motivated and motivating. I I appreciated the courage when it was there. The vulnerability was there. Anyway, I, I, I want to read this little bit for you here uh, where we know, where Joe knows that his American life has totally been replaced. I'm on page 257, okay? Mm -hmm. um, 256, rather. He closed his eyes and felt himself floating, disembodied unconnected. A year ago, he'd begun dreaming in Japanese. Even in his sleep, he never ventured past the garden wall. It wasn't safe in any respect. He couldn't remember his brother's face. He couldn't remember Molly's. His life was gone. It had just started. He was spent. He wanted Sachi again. His contradictions were holding him together and tearing him to pieces. Like This is obviously a moment of great change for Joe, but I, I just see that his change is inextricably linked uh, in terms of narrative and in terms of character, obviously, with what Takahashi Kansai provides for him. And I, I, I just see him, I see them oddly as principles in this story, although I can't disagree with what you say about their time on the page. But I went four and a half in total. I went four and a half because I was really impressed with Joe and and his work in this story and the the motivation gained from Takahashi and the, the depth and richness of his character as well. So I think with the investigation, uh, this is a perfect example when you know an author is very informed about what they're writing in terms of history mm -hmm. and culture because it that author does not fall back on expository passages to back them up. Like, there's a confidence to the writing that instills the reader immersion into the story. Mm. Uh, there's a balance mm. of allowing the reader's imagination to fill in the blanks while at the same time capturing a moment or a place in just a few words. Um, right. And that's okay. how I would, that's how I okay. would sum up the, in terms of historical fiction and crime fiction writing, how I would sum up this, you know, how, says the fine job that, James Kestrel does in delivering this story to us. 
like he plants the clues. Uh, we get subtle hints about the investigation. If you go back and reread the book, you'll see a lot of things just align perfectly. When we get into the perpetrators, we'll talk about Beamer and as well as John Smith. But what I really liked was just how well-written like the investigation was in terms of the police procedural, in terms of the forensic contingent of the investigation, in terms of how the police worked at the time, how he captured the culture of the time, the, 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 the mindset of people at the time, without, mm-hmm. as I said, relying on too much description. Like, and you can tell that he's navigating the island, and you can tell that James Kestrel has been there. He knows what he's talking about. You can tell James Kestrel has been to Tokyo, how he's been to Hong Kong. You, you can feel that experience through Joe's eyes and, and how well it's done. The survival portion of the story, beginning with the invasion of the new territories in Hong Kong, that supplants the the A plot, the mystery. It is ambitious. Yeah. Um, it provides a unique experience of World War II, where after some spectacular feats of survival, McGrady makes it to Tokyo, harrowing, mm-hmm. harrowingly, mm-hmm. but he makes it there. And then he's saved by good fortune. And of course, that fateful newspaper photo uh, with, he, with him involved, yeah. uh, that's what really <laughs> saves him in yeah. the end. And it plot it's pretty cool, over. actually, that bit. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Like serendipitously, that comes back and kind of saves yes. his ass when it was such an, an annoying moment in his day, you know? Yes. For a moment that I think any author could have made and just as, would have came off as a deus ex machina. Would, That's you know, right. Would, yeah. Yeah. Would, would be that Takahashi just notices him and saves him and just so happens yeah. to be, you know, yeah. you, you know the, the adopted father of the girl. And that's just, that's just good plotting. Yes, exactly. It's good plotting, and it makes the previous journey from Hong Kong to Tokyo, it makes it feel earned, you know, despite that coincidence. But took, as we know, Takahashi was on the lookout for him because of that photo. And this is an example, again, of uh, Kestrel setting things up, you know, setting up how Beamer just for some reason does not like Joe. Like, because... Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. you think, yeah, you think, yeah. how, you think, for example, how he says, "I want you to work with Ball." He's going, he's going, he's going to basically uh, take over the investigation. You do what he says. Ball That's instantly, right, yeah. fall, in, instantly falls in with Joe immediately. So he does. We know yeah. that this, and we know that people like Joe in the department. But everyone, even Gabrielson, tol- tolerates him. Kincaid at Alexander and Baldwin, he's okay with them as well. Uh, Kimmel, obviously, the Admiral I mean, there's, there's, only trusts him. Yeah. The Admiral only only trusts him. And I mean, you want to compare the Admiral to Takahashi. Uh, the Admiral's mm-hmm. not really... Uh, the Admiral's just a historical figure who's been shoved into the storyline, essentially. Because um, husband Kimmel was the commander of the Pacific Fleet. And the day of Pearl Harbor, he essentially, like, I'm done with. You know, like, I'm done. Like, And then they replaced him with, with, with uh, Nimitz. So he's done from the story point. But if you think about... He works... Admiral Kimmel works well as a almost a father surrogate to McGrady because McGrady's a soldier. So they obviously have a better rapport yeah. with the, investi- with the investigation. Um, and be- I mean, you-, you can kind of set it up that that's kind of a red herring where like Beamer says, he hates, he has that comment about the, the Navy, a bunch of fools moving toy boats around on a, on a table. Right. And so, so Beamer mm-hmm, is like, mm-hmm. he's a local, he's been in the police service in Honolulu for a long time. He doesn't like how probably how the Navy, for example, um, led to you know prostitution being legalized in Honolulu at the time, uh, so you can see many reasons why Beamer would not like Joe for that. So there's a good red herring that 
Kestrel sets up there. But in the end, we know the reason why Joe doesn't like McGrady. Sorry, we don't, we know we know the reason why Beamer doesn't like McGrady. It's because he's yeah he's he's a uh, crypto he's a crypto fascist essentially. Um, mm-hmm. And on top of that, like and Joe stands for everything that he hates about you know America at the time that he wants you know Joe is open minded and he does his own thing and he doesn't follow orders the way that or he, he there's and, and he's an outsider. And that was really the kind of hint towards, um, I guess, the xenophobia and the hatred inherent in Beamer um, that we see. So there's a lot of good setups there in terms of the writing in that. And I really appreciate that example. Going back to the sequence where I think, I still think like 50 or 50 pages or so, I think was required to give a lot more, to give more impact to the sequences in Tokyo. Yet... I do like the idea, the original idea of this guy who ends up in the Second World War. Think think about it. If Joe, if Pearl Harbor was attacked and let's say Joe survived, you know, Joe would be signing up. You know that he would be probably sent to the Pacific Theater or maybe he would be sent to Africa or end up in Europe. Mm -hmm. He would have known without a doubt if he was not involved in that investigation, he still would have participated in the Second World War. He could have survived. He could have died. He could have ended up with Molly um, and a whole different, you know, life ahead of him. But the investigation that he is in is is like very fatalistic determination, which is very noir, which I which I like. He still ends up going to war in in his own way, and he has a very different experience from other veterans because he lives in a, you know, he lives pretty comfortably uh, in in Tokyo, despite you know the paranoia involved and the emotional anxiety that he's been in, he's in a lot better place than a lot of other soldiers and POWs were in the second world war. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. yet he comes, but he comes back to Hawaii, comes back to America, to society. And what's interesting is, is that he's been on the side, he's been with the enemy technically during that time, but he still has that same experience where he comes home and he's a, and he's a soldier and you know, your girl has left you for another man. And all those archetypes, those, cliches that you would experience you know these kind of stories do appear in this novel but i just i just like the way that kestrel works them in a way where yeah he's calling them out and he's you know he's highlighting them but at the same time he's working them in a different way and then you have you know just those themes and those um those trails that he leaves us uh kestrel does a great job to me in this in terms of his writing style i as i said like i like how he has minimal exposition but he still captures, you know, like the moments, like the idea of like where he has this one line about how that was the last time that they would ever see each other again. We're talking about Molly after, you know, that night and what after yeah. that night that yeah. they have. Even if you weren't familiar with what time period this took place in, it creates an ominous, a sense of ominous doom. Oh, totally of this, does. Yeah. Of, yeah. Of portent, foreboding you know, for sure. And, and if you know the history, and, it's even it's even more because then you're. Your, your your hackles are automatically up because you're like oh boy what's going to... oh I see Pearl Harbor is going to do something and that mm-hmm. put me on the tra- on the trail of going is she going to die in the Pearl Harbor attack like what's going to happen how is that going to change the investigation are we going to ha- it's because the Pearl Harbor attack is that going to reveal that there's like maybe spies in in the Navy or is there going to be some sort of connection to I knew with the murder with the dead Japanese girl automatically this would be this would be led this would lead to Pearl Harbor somehow. And it did, mm-hmm. essentially, in terms of the storytelling. Um, it, just, it went in a very different direction than I thought it did. So I was very surprised at that. And 
And that Kestrel was probably aware that people would be following that path that I did. And then he diverts from it. Yeah. Let me ask you, just to kind of stop you in your tracks for a second. Do you think it was bold on the part of um, on the part of Kestrel to remove or, or to kind of signpost the end of that relationship so early? Or do you think that that was kind of necessary in order for us to accept Sachi as a possible partner for Joe later? Like, what do you think Kestrel was, was getting at there with signposting it so forebodingly as he did? I, I think it's twofold. I think, A, yeah, he's trying to create foreboding and tension. And it's also, you know, forecasting, you know, the end of that relationship. And the, again, we're talking about this fatal determinism uh, in the story, in the, in the writing, right? Which is a key thing about detective fiction, about noir. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. we're, leading in, yeah. we're, we're leading into, you're not in control of your destiny. You just got to survive it somehow. And, and, and yeah, end that's up a good way. observation. And, and it's the experiences that you have along the way that motivate you to your second coming or your, you know, your revelations in the end. And the how Joe goes yeah, through that yeah. experience, you know, is um, it becomes much more cathartic. And also people reading this genre are, are used to knowing or they, they should probably know it doesn't always work out <laughs> for the guy and the girl. So... It's, it's maybe not as bold as it sounds. Yeah, especially yeah. during the Second World War. Yeah, cool. Okay, yeah. so um, how did you find the pacing of the text, scene to scene, chapter to chapter, section to section? So Honolulu, and all the way up until um, the arrival in Tokyo, and this initial setup after that, I think the pacing is fantastic. Uh, the middle section afterwards, I found, is a bit rushed in terms of the storytelling. Uh, and, like, wouldn't it be great if, you know, if we encountered that same boy on the on, on his bicycle, just, like, walking or, 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 like, just to have him somehow in the storyline so that when he's killed, there's a more of an, an impact to it. And, mm-hmm. it's, and that would also give more depth to the reaction that Sashi has to his death and how she wants nothing to do with Joe at that moment. And ca- and also helping to capture, you know, just the the antagonism, the attention of the situation. How like she's with an American who she believes, you know, is a good man, and that she, her and her father are against the war. But right now, Tokyo is being leveled by B fifty twos, and you know they're attacking her country and killing her people. And this boy being killed in front of her is is like kind of symbolic of that too. And it's just her real. It's just her having that kind of moment of. Uh, conflict, yeah, I suppose, that, that, make, yeah. that, that makes her run away. It's not just the horror, the violence of it. It's just the, it's just that conflict. Um, it's, it's quite, you know, it's something, it's, it's something worth exploring. And Kestrel, I think, touches it on the surface. But I still feel that there's a lot of emphasis that could have been put into the middle section. And to me, like, it, it doesn't ruin the pacing of the story, but it's a bit jarring for me in, in terms of the time jump. And I kind of wish they explored that a little bit more. But once he gets back to uh, Honolulu and then he has the impetus behind him also to do right with Takahashi's niece, um, that brings you bring, that brings things back full circle. And then a lot of the story, all of the story points begin to like tie together and everything sort of makes sense. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I think it, I think it unfolded beautifully, you know, towards the end of the story. Um, yeah, it's but, a bit like a, a sandwich, isn't it? It's like a 
uh, a sandwich, a World War II sandwich with like a Japanese scene in the middle. Yeah, and absolutely. and what you you said about it being a police procedural, the procedural is parts one and three, and yes. the second act is very much this this cultural filling of uh, character transformation and absorption of Japanese life and love and all of that stuff. You could even argue that once he leaves Honolulu and it goes to after he leaves Wake Island and arrives in Hong Kong and he gets set up by John Smith, you could argue that and the whole attack on Hong Kong by the Japanese. You can say that's when it kind of becomes a historical epic in a way, because we have A, the Pearl Harbor background, but B, we have the attack on Tokyo. We have almost like this, I'm trying to compare it to like, I don't know, like Children of Men. You have Clive Owen follow, like basically wandering through this war zone, and you have Joe McGrady wandering through this war zone of, um, of, of Hong Kong trying to survive, going from one... Uh, prison containment area to another and getting on the ship where they're all being beaten and then arriving at Tokyo where he's probably going to end up dying essentially. And then he, and then he's saved and then he's in this sanctuary. And I do like to the fact that um, Kestrel is, is all about reinforcing the detective narrative because he says, I know I'll work on this case in my mind while I'm in captivity and that will keep me sane. And maybe that's kind of what, Kestrel is going for it here. Mm. I just felt like maybe yeah. we just needed to kind of just give a little more, a more of Joe in the in, in in that time period between when he arrives in Tokyo and then when he leaves Tokyo. If we had a little bit more of Joe's mindset and him in the conflict of keeping up with the investigation and trying to forget, you know, all the sorrows in his life and his anxieties, I think that would have been a bit more. And again, to explore Takahashi and Sashi a bit more and build up that relationship between Joe and, and Sashi, I feel that it, the, the book could have been better for it. It's still a great book as it is in terms of particularly of the writing, but that's how okay, I feel about so it. So what did you go for? What'd you go for? Well, before I get to the final mark, I want to point out in, in the writing, I mean, the style is obviously inspired. I would dare say that, you know, we know that he's a Stephen King fan, but would you say that Kestrel's probably read some Chandler or Hammett or, or at least is aware oh, of the gosh, of, course, of, yeah. of him in the story. Yes, I mean, it, there, there are no Bon Mots here in the story, really. There are a couple of, there are some moments of humor, but not many. There's a bit of, uh, of kind of laconic wit, but not much of that yeah. dryness that made Chandler so famous. But what I would say in terms of the style is that it's very declarative, very straight ahead. If you look at uh, page I mean, number, he, I've got a, no, 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 no. It's not as no. sculpted as that. But if you look at if you look at paragraph, uh, sorry, page one thirty three. This is a section when they're in wake. Okay, page one thirty three. I'll just read you a section which I think for our listeners is very representative of what the book's action and kind of how the book's exposition runs. Wake Island was low and sandy. The afternoon sunlight was like the inside of a whitewashed kiln. He could hear the surf booming onto the reef a mile away. He followed the other passengers along the path to the low-slung hotel. Maybe Frank Lloyd Wright drew it up, but no mm -hmm. frills contractors had built it. They'd hauled kit pieces off ships, then bolted them together. He crossed the breezy veranda and stood in line to get his key. These are declarative sentences, one verb, one subject. They're very straight-ahead action first emotion if we're going to render any much later it it's very it's very procedural in that sense the paragraphs and and like i said i i probably for 
for the sake of parts one and three, I probably could have settled on any paragraph and found examples of sentences like that. Like Kestrel yeah. does not write in an in an off-putting way, in a kind of a pretentious structure. He, he, everything with him is is quick and direct, yes. and yes, descriptive and elegant in places, but it is deliberately move ahead action oriented you know and i think that helps in its pace it just so happens he's managed skillfully to create uh excellent characters and he uses a cheat insofar as he's got an already existing setting for him in this narrative that he uses very well like very well you or i might want to set a story in ancient rome or the peloponnesian war or the russian revolution but he knows the environment so well he's researched researched it so well that the setting becomes a character insofar as it forces others to do things and to reflect upon them right i i just think like that really helps him with the move ahead because we already know what what's going on politically and what's going on in terms of import to the world history so he kind of uses that skillfully doesn't he but he does, yeah sorry yeah. getting back to the getting back to the, um, the the writing itself that's how i felt about it that's cool that's i i see that 100 percent, man and i just want to emphasize what you're talking about of how the his how he write the those declarative sentences and how those declarative sentences are so loaded with meaning, despite using so many words and so much lack of a description, uh, that he just carries it so well. And as a person who loves historical fiction, um, I just want to share this particular passage. And to me, I think this, this just captures, in terms of writing, how he's able to make, tell a story that's set in history, but also avoid so much exposition, but yet have so much meaning with so few words and creates uh, attention uh, and, t- and, mm-hmm. and creates tension in the narrative. Beamer drove a city car. He smoked Luckies and sucked his inhaler. This is on page 41, by the way. Okay. Uh, it's, it's the beginning of like the new paragraph at the bottom of the page. Beamer drove a city car. He smoked Luckies and sucked his inhaler. He had coffee in a tin cup. The only thing McGrady had ever seen him eat was a hard-boiled egg. McGrady swiveled his wind, his wind wing and leaned close for fresh air. They came down the Kamahamiya Highway, past the bars and the pawn shops and the lunch stands and reached Pearl Harbor. The carriers were in. Lexington and Enterprise loomed over the docks, taller than anything downtown. Navy blue wildcats lined the flat tops, wingtip to wingtip. Next to Ford Island, Battleship Row was packed, gray steel and long guns, armor reaching for the sky. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Battleship Row was packed. That means all the battleships were in the harbor because that's what the Pacific Fleet arrangement was. Um, in case something was going to happen, that's where it was. And that's where Yamamoto and the Japanese knew it would be because of that. And so just the idea of what that in that one paragraph, he is basically setting up the rest of the story right then and there. Like Battlefield Battleship Row was packed. And mm-hmm. in terms of history writing, like that to me just gave me goosebumps. You know what I mean? Because he knows as a, if, if, that he's writing, if he's, he knows that for one part of his audience might be horror. One part of his audience might be mystery lovers. One part of his audience might be just into historical fiction. And that paragraph was written for people for all three of those genre fans, in my opinion. So I really okay. enjoyed that. 
And let's just yeah, talk finally good. about him as a as a as a just in terms of how he writes action. He writes it so well. It's brutal, but it's quick and it's believable. And just imagine, just think of the tension that one scene in that one moment when he is in the prison cell and he's hearing people being bayoneted a door to door, door to door before they get to his cell. And it's only because he's American that they spare his life, but it's believable. Mm -hmm. And the tension Mm -hmm. there is just so incredible that it no longer becomes historical fiction. It becomes, you're living that experience with the character. And that's Mm -hmm. the genius I think of James Kestrel's writing. So as a whole, I gave the investigation, the overall writing of Five Decembers, uh, four and a half out of five. Okay. Nice one. Excellent plotting here. All the early characters find ways of coming back and playing a role. Even characters that you only kind of hear about or their connections are mentioned, you know, like um, Danny Boy, for example. They come back and work into the story. It's yeah. it's really interesting to me, though. I think, like, serendipitously, we mentioned a, a moment before but I think it's really neat how at the start, where we're at the murder scene, the coroner who comes onto the scene at the farm, he asks for the army, Fort Shafter, to conduct the autopsies because they owe him a favor instead of the city hospital. And I'm thinking to myself, if this happens at the city hospital, there's a very good chance that Beamer would have been able to smother the news or frame it as something else to protect the truth of the killings. And I really like that bit of unlucky coincidence you know for him which which led to the navy's interference because it went to fort shafter then obviously um obviously the autopsies were conducted by colonel underhill and that gets out and gets the admiral's attention right like do you see what i'm saying like if it weren't for the coroner saying no let's send it to the to the base if he hadn't done that beamer would have smothered this right yeah absolutely i just thought that was really neat smothered Mm-hmm. That that's also like the chaos of of everyday randomness. Like you just don't know. You 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 take your luck where you get it. And although it might not have felt like luck really to him at the time, this did put McGrady on the trajectory to to solve this case. It was really neat because otherwise he wouldn't have had the chance, right? He he was appointed by Beamer to go out there and sort it before Beamer knew anything about where the bodies were going to go. He was sending this guy out because he thought he could control them. But the coroner comes in with the play of his own and, and upsets Beamer's plan, right? So I thought that was really cool. Um, and yep. that's good. That's just interesting plotting. Things that we can go back and say, oh, it wasn't just A to B to C. It was A part one and two to B and then B part three and four to C. Like, I like that. I found the ending of this novel, we haven't talked about it yet. I found that it was a little bit hyperbolic, maybe. Like struggling through Japan, trains, roads, north storms, hills in the wintertime, losing luggage, showing up at Sachi's door like he did, and then taken to the hot springs. It was a little bit hyperbolic. But you know what? By the time we reach the last chapter and that the vengeance is met, we just want catharsis for this character. He deserves to be happy. He deserves to be at peace at peace so i i went along with it i'm okay with it the pacing of the novel as i've already said as you've already said is especially good particularly in the denouement i found parts of that gripping i seriously cannot fault the narrative at all the last hundred pages of it at least even though you know it was was a bit leaning towards the romance side of things but 
I think that's justified. It's a declarative, straight-ahead prose style that Kestrel uses. There's some irony and humor, but not as much as Chandler or, you know, other writers that we've seen. McGrady is really trying for the right reasons in this book, and I appreciate that James Kestrel left his conversation with DeVries off the page. I don't know how you felt about this, but at the end, when in Hong Kong, Grady, McGrady knows that John Smith is working at the American consulate, we do not get the conversation between himself and DeVries about back me up, I want you to follow me, the guy you got working for you is a Nazi. There's none of that. And so when he shows up at the end, it it it, it feels very legitimately surprising to me as a reader, and probably you as well. And it's surprising to Joe Smith, or to John Smith, because that's the little, that that's that's the moment of hesitation that McGrady seizes upon. To, to end up getting the upper hand. I like that, the, mm-hmm. again, it, com- it comes back to good plotting. I like that Kestrel knew to leave that scene off. Like, he could have had a man-to-man scene where he's saying, look, you know, I needed your help back then in Hong Kong. You didn't give it to me. I need your help now. The guy you've got's a Nazi. He's, a, he's responsible for three murders. None of that is in the book. And so when DeVries shows up in the Hong Kong scene at the very end and helps McGrady take care of John Smith once and for all. I felt really, really excited by that because I know that it was cool and and it was a great surprise at the end, but also good decision on part of the writer, I think, to leave that one out. I, I, you know, I kind of wish though, like that McGrady had slept a night in that inn before he continued his journey up to Saatchi. Like, I know it's a (laughs) bit of romance to drive him on through the snow and that desperate climb, blah, blah, blah. But he could have found out if if uh, Takahashi Sanchi was still in town, he could have found out because the guy said, I saw her last week, right? So he, I don't know. I just feel like he needed rest, man. Like he needed to sleep and he needed to eat. The guy w- would have offered him a room, but he didn't want it. He yeah. just wanted to get there. Yeah. I felt that was a little bit, a little bit too much, Hand- but you know what? A little, a little ham-fisted, yeah. A little ham-fisted, but these are minor, minor points. Yes. Uh, and I think they're justified within the character writing. I think overall, yeah, little bits here and there, but this was a, a fully engaging book for me, and I went five. I went full marks overall. Wow. Okay, wow. Yeah, I did. I went I went full marks overall because I didn't see as much of a weakness in the Japanese section as you did. I hear your points. I hear your points, but I was happy to go full marks for this because it gave me enough of what I needed, so much so that I thought, you know, Kansi and Sachi could be principal characters. So, I mean, I was happy to go five for investigation. I need to be consistent. So if it's a bit gushing for where I usually am, that's okay. I'm okay to do that. That's let's, right. move on to, let's move on to Perpetrator. Yeah, for the Perpetrators. So if you think about his name, uh, Beamer, I, is, that itself is kind of a reference to me anyways. I don't know if you picked that up, but you know what Beamer is? You, you know what a Beamer is, right? Oh, it's a BMW for one thing. So, yeah, so a, you automatically yeah. have the, the German connection yeah, right there. Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that was deliberate or not, but I don't know. It, mm, it kind of works cool. for me. Yeah. It kind of works for me in that In way. retrospect, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about Beamer. Uh, I think he's. I, I think that McGrady wrote him well. Mm-hmm. Uh, he never... Kestrel. Re- like, yeah, sorry. I, yeah, I feel Kestrel you know, wrote him well. You know, like, 
maybe there could have been maybe a little more motivation for Beamer's fascist alignment, but there are some, there are subtle hints. As I said, this is a yeah. guy who worked yeah. in Honolulu. He's a white guy working in Honolulu in the 1930s and 40s. He's dealing with like a very ethnic population where he is. So, and he's a, he doesn't seem to have any relatives or any friends or family. Like he seems to be a mm-hmm. bit of a loner. You know, mm-hmm. he's a smoker. He's killing himself. There's like an isolationist feeling towards him. So I can kind of see how you could yeah. put together a sketch of someone who is essentially isolated and outlier in his own way where he where he's living now and wants the Aryan supremacy, I guess you could say, uh, to fall upon Hawaii and where he lives. And he's working towards that. And maybe he's just embittered about his experiences and that eventually mm-hmm. like dro- mm-hmm. drove him to where to where he is. But yeah, I, I like what you said, though. Too. I just want to pick up on something that you said, pal. Sorry to interrupt you, but I agree yeah. with what you said about a bit more on his connection to the German security would have been welcome. And you, you don't need to telegraph it in like, you know, a really ham-fisted way. But I do think that that would have stretched out the talking villain stuff that we saw at the end a little bit. You know, it would have made... Yeah that a little more so i i'm with you there on that like how did he get involved they don't really seem to care they're just taking him at face value you're a nazi that's enough for us and i feel like well this guy's been in the story busting balls long enough that he should have to talk he should have to explain how this connection to german security has come about it's not just like oh the neo-nazi uh membership thing just comes through the post for all americans right like come on there's got to be some explanation here and i remember buddy actually now that i'm saying this i remember when you and i reviewed lady in the lake the talking villain bit was a was one of the things i had a problem with in that chandler novel that you Mm -hmm. you didn't have as much of the trouble with it but i think we would both agree here that beamer is or, or should perhaps could have been strengthened by a little bit more character writing in that talking villain scene or before it even, you know? Yeah. Like part of me kind of wanted Beamer at the start, you know, where he says like, you know, if we, here's the leash, if you follow that leash, we'll get along just fine. And maybe they would have, maybe like Beamer, uh, no one, maybe McGrady could have gone on the way that he did and never knew about Beamer's true, you know, alliances and, uh, not, I don't think Beamer saw himself as a German citizen or a member of the Nazi party. I think he saw himself as an American, but as he was dissident. just part of Yes. Yeah. 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 As a, as a, as a, yeah. Like I, I see him as a political dissident, but I, I, I think that he believed he was an American and he was writing his intentions. Now, if we go to the writing of Beamer, besides some possible setup where he could just be your typical, you know, your typical, a uh, disgruntled old police chief, uh, police captain, who eventually, you know, think of like, you know, I don't know, for example, Beverly Hills Cop and how Ronnie Cox's lieutenant doesn't like Axel Foley, but eventually <laughs> he's lying to his own commander at the end of the movie just to help, just to keep Axel Foley out of trouble. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah. So, so we don't get that trajectory with Beamer, obviously. By the no, end, of we the, do not. <laughs> by the end of the story. But, I mean, it could have gone in that direction. But I found that, even so, Kessel portrays Beamer as someone unlikable from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there's this whole true. thing about yeah. him just like, uh, just his 
I mean, you have the straight lace attitude. He keeps like his tie on all the time and he keeps his clothes all clean. But then he has that cigarette all the time and that kind of like unruliness to, to, to his face and the Benazadrine addiction and, you know, always smoking his cigarette and, and him coughing and all this sort of stuff. He's just a man who's just basically being eaten alive by maybe the hatred inside him. And the mm-hmm. cigarette is symbolic of that, which made me think yeah, of instantly maybe. of the cigarette smoking man from the X-Files. But it's... Yeah. <laughs> We're not far away in, in that respect. We're not. No, you're right. That's that's not as yeah. silly an analogy as as it might sound when you first say it. But I yeah. don't think Beamer is a great orchestrator. He doesn't come off the page no. as like a guy who's really in control of different facets, which is partly no. why... Which And I mean, John Smith does. John Smith feels way more resourceful than Beamer. So how is that well, power I'm- struggle... How's that power struggle negotiated? Like who's taking orders from who? Again, getting yeah. back to your original point, a bit more connection to how Beamer is is in this stratified German security, this fascism, uh, post-war fascism. I would really, uh, I'd really like to see not post-war, but yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, well, that's the thing about Beamer too is that like we really only know him as like was he the key Nazi agent in Hawaii, and therefore. Smith uh, Smith's character has to work with him, obviously, and and obviously when, when like this guy is just you know they probably don't think much of him like someone like uh, Smith who's part of the Abwehr, uh-huh. they're just they're, they're they're just coming over and you know he's giving them a place to a place to stay and that's, that's true about yeah it. he's a contact yeah he's a he's More a contact a boss. Yeah. yeah he's a useful tool to the Abwehr mm-hmm. and to uh, to John Smith for the overall plotting of things because. We know that the Japanese is using the Abwehr because they're allies with the Nazis. They're using yes, them to yeah. make sure that, you know, any knowledge of the Pearl Harbor attack is, mm-hmm. is cut off because the whole point of Pearl Harbor was that it was a sneak attack. And well, you know, did they you... had to come up. Yeah. Sorry. I was just going to say, like, I agree with exactly what you're saying. But are you getting that from the page or from your own supposition, your own reading into how people like this were used by the, you know, by, by the Reichstag or, or by the... Um... By the well, right. I'm talking like, for I'm talking though for example how the um how No, Beamer, I, under, I understand I, what you're saying. I totally get what you're saying. I'm just asking are you reading this more skillfully because of your understanding than Kestrel's no. giving us on the page because I don't think there's evidence on the page for Beamer to be one of these guys like I, I agree 100% with what you're saying and I subscribe to your line of thought. I just don't think Kestrel's giving us that on the page. Like that's credit. I think you, as a as as a knowledgeable person, are is is giving the book, because we never really do understand where Beamer rests in this, you know, this the German security world. We don't really know, do we? No, we don't really know. But anyways, I'm just saying is that even though he's a Nazi, like I think Kestrel mm-hmm. kind of went a little bit overboard. Like, okay, he also had to make him like a a sex pervert as well. You know, he That's had to right. do, yeah, yeah, he had, he, he basically did, yeah. had, he had to make this guy completely, utterly evil. And I think he tried a bit too hard on that, in my opinion. Okay. But, good point. Yeah. Fair point. Yeah. I just think he made Beamer seem a bit too evil. Like I think if Beamer had like a, a believed in what he did and he had like a family and a regular life and went back to it and, and, and that was what he believed in. And he was his own patriot in his own mind. I think that would have made him for a more interesting character. Instead, he instead like he gets completely villainized, and there's not much depth to him at all, except he's just a man full of hatred, and <laughs> it's symbolically yeah. with like 
his own law his, his own hatred has eaten him up inside and 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 whatnot right because do we mm-hmm. see for example um do we see mcgrady smoking a cigarette no we don't we see ball who's a bit of an who, who is an asshole and he's also into into the drink as well um showing how addiction and stuff and whatnot uh, shows the true character of who we are. So there's kind of a moral righteousness given to McGrady and where other characters to me are kind of, they're showing their flaws and weaknesses and that gives, and that allows Kestrel to kind of paint them as worse than what they actually might, might be or how they could have been written in my opinion. And so I just think that he made like, I had no problem with Beamer as a villain overall, I enjoyed him as a villain. I think it worked well with the story. I just think maybe he went a bit too far in terms of making this guy as evil as possible. And okay. I think he could have he could have made him more believable. Now right. for John Smith, he's kind of a mystery. He's enigmatic uh, in his own way. He mentions that his um, his mentor was part of the Stauffenberg plot, and of course he was like Stauffenberg and all the others when they tried to kill Hitler, they were all executed. He's a patriotic mm-hmm. German. He's a sadist and violent as well. I don't know if he was a true Nazi per se, uh, but he was definitely a patriot to Germany because yeah. the fact that he was with the Abwehr and what I read about the Abwehr, even when they were the military intelligence at the beginning of the, of the Second World War, even then they were against Hitler because they thought he was not a term, he was not great in terms of military command and organization. And he knew that all of those guys like, I don't know, like Cattell and, whatnot they would you know kiss kiss hitler's mm-hmm. ass mm-hmm. and the abware had to keep quiet about that because they just wanted to win the freaking war and sure. as as the war went on and war went on and stalingrad happened and whatnot that led to the stauffenberg plot right it wasn't because oh we're sad about the jews and we're going to free them no it was more about getting control of germany again and setting it right and so there was a, I wasn't quite sure if Smith was a Nazi or not. I just knew that he was a patriotic German. He was a soldier. He was kind of like the mirror opposite of our main character in a way. Yeah. He was a true and, antagonist in a way. We just never get to see yeah. behind his eyes too much. And I think what exactly. you're saying about about that that plot, it's interesting that he only brings it up when his life's on the line, though, as if he's trying to buy some true, true. credit, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's almost like a, a separate, separate plea, like... I'm just exactly, like you. Yeah. I, I'm a soldier. I'm, I'm not the Nazi you think I am, this pure evil. I'm just a soldier doing my job. Well, you're definitely yeah, yeah. a sadist. And why would you That's want right. to, like, why disembowel, you know, this this young man and, and rape the girl? Unless that was the other guy who raped the girl. We never yeah, know could what have happened been. there. Yeah. But even still, like, that's also a form of torture too, right? Um, mm-hmm. Or that could have been someone like, I don't know, someone that high Japanese command saying, this traitor, this girl traitor who was going to portray our intentions, I want you to destroy her. Like, I can see mm-hmm. someone in Japanese, like in the Kaipatai, like just saying, like, to Smith, them when they give their orders and what they want to do with the girl and whatnot, you know, is make her suffer. You know what I mean? And maybe that was the, the malicious intention behind it. But anyway. What did you go for for your perpetrator? Did you like them I went, together? I liked, the, like, they were more than average for me. I kind of wanted more on them. But I understand where the story was going and how it was written that, you know, that's probably the best they could do for that type of story in terms of development. I mean, they could have gone, you know, deeper, but I think they worked overall for the story. I think it maybe an adaptation or whatnot could flesh them out a bit more. That said, I gave the perpetrators four out of five. Okay. 
right? Well, I wasn't far off you. I went for three and a half. Similar okay. reasons. I'm not going to go through all that Beamer chat again because I agreed with you on all of it. I think that he's thinly sketched for a purpose because ultimately this is uh, McGrady's story. And you can't keep adding hundreds of pages to things. Like at, at some point you're going to have like a War and Peace volume. So in trying to keep it kind of chiseled down, I see why he is thinly sketched in places, particularly that security background and how he fits in all of this. John Smith, I found, was compelling when he was there. But the fact that we never learn his real name, I think, is is also telling, you know, how many of these how many of these shadows are just out there working, were out there working, are perhaps still out there working. You know, there's a slight reference to um, not boys of Brazil, but, you know, being able to help people away from bad situations, yeah. so to speak, the, like about the you know, exodus of German the exodus of, of Germany. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's there's a hint of that in the story. So obviously Smith is one of a part of a bigger thing, you know, although I, I tell you, I also like the threat as it's on the page of the Japanese secret police. I felt that the Kempatai mm. scenes were really quite powerful. Maybe that was because out of ignorance, I don't know much about. I had to learn a lot about this. Obviously, you have the Stasi and you've got the SS and you've got whatever else that are, are yeah. more they're more familiar to me. The Kempatai yeah. was not as familiar to me. Um, okay, and I did I did find that threat very real, palpable in the book, and I, I I put that in with the perpetrator just because I think it would be a shame not to give credit there. Um, but overall, I went for three and a half with the perpetrator. It's you know the the bigger perpetrator is the Nazi Party, which you know you're dealing with as. I, I mean, John Smith, you're chasing a nobody until the end, right? You know what he looks like through a sketch. You know it by Emily Kahn. You know what he looks like. You don't know anything else about him apart from the fact that he, he he's manipulative and powerful and he managed to get McGrady up on a sham rape charge in Hong Kong, which obviously motivated what ultimately came back to kill him. So there's a bit of irony in that. But he himself, <laughs> as the guy you're chasing, he's a bit of a nobody. He doesn't... You know, th this is not a procedural where the serial killer sends letters and says, oh, you're looking for me in the wrong places, pal. Or, you know, like in uh, Knots and Crosses, right? The Rebus story where you're, you're given little clues about things. He doesn't leave things on the scenes. He's not that type of guy. He wants to get away back mm -hmm. into the shadows as quickly as possible. And that's where Beamer kind of steps out, I guess, on the page because he's more present on the page. But uh, anyway, I went three and a half for perpetrators. Um, enough... Enough said on that, I think, before we um, bore our listeners to death. You went four, I went three and a half. The bigger perpetrator is, you know, Hitler's plan, right? Yeah, well, the Axis powers, essentially. The Axis powers, yes. Sorry, the Axis powers. Okay, uh, environment. I'll, I'll start here. Also, I'll go through it very quickly. Very nicely rendered this book, I think, all through. Um, the environments of battle are, as you said at the outset, impeccably researched, they're conjured here with, um, I, I think, real duty of care, if that makes any sense. It's a, it's an odd expression, I guess. But I think that Kestrel wants to get it right. And the Japanese sequences, for me, stand out more than the Honolulu ones, even though I enjoy the return and the homecoming to America. I like that stuff. But I think the the writing, the celebration of Japanese landscape and architecture and food and, mm -hmm. and wine, like it's, it's there in a way that the other stuff is taken for granted. Cause well, yeah, it's Honolulu, 
but we're in America again. You know, the beer is at the bar. <laughs> Let's leave it at that, right? <laughs> That's like, right. You exactly. know, the diner has the soup. Let's leave it at that. So I, I get that and I, I like it. But uh, the Japanese stuff for me, I like. I, I don't know how you felt about this, Josh, but inner spaces, like interiors are described with some lingering attention more, I think, than the exterior ones, which creates in a war story a really interesting micro dynamic mm. that 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 beats the macro setting you know you you read a nice section a moment ago about um what was it admiralty row or battleship row right yeah battleship row yes and now you know i mean that is i guess a, a micro setting but there's not a lot of macro dynamic in the book did you feel like interior spaces were written with lingering attention or am, am i just reading that no, I agree with you. We had the crime scene that was with lingering attention. The medical examiner's office that was lingering yeah, attention. Yeah. Even like Molly's house where she lives in, in the backyard, there was lingering attention there. Mm -hmm. And then of course, there was a lot of lingering attention in the interior spaces in Japan and in and in Hong Kong yeah. too. So I think what's what I think what gives the realism of this story and makes it feel more than just a historical fiction where you have, you know, that, that window dressing of, of, of history and impeccable research and trying to be expository as possible about that. Instead, Kestrel goes right to, these are the rooms that people live in and where they live their lives, where they eat and sleep and make love or what mm -hmm. have you. Like he is showing people living their day-to-day -day lives. And that's why these institutions, these these households are being are being portrayed the way they are, in my opinion, is because he wants us to make us live in the world with the characters, where the, in the places where they live, and I think that helps sell um, the writing in terms of what locale they're in, whether it's Hawaii, whether it's Wake Island, whether it's Hong Kong, or whether it's in Takahashi's uh, house in outside of Tokyo. Mm. It's funny, actually. You mentioned at the start that the podcast um, where. Kestrel was talking about how much he loves Honolulu and the the environment of it and the you know the the kind of um the diaspora of you know ethnicities and stuff like that and yet I would say that in this story McGrady takes Honolulu for granted so he certainly isn't a mouthpiece for the author in that respect because it's Hong Kong no. that or it's it's Japan he falls in love with when he returns to Honolulu he tries to change things remember there's that scene where Molly comes in and he's like he had had this mat and that sort of low-lying table he didn't really even know why and then the next sentence says something like of course he knew why he knew exactly what he was doing he was trying to transform <laughs> his house into the Japanese home that that he spent yes. four years in right so great detail I, yeah, I just I just think that McGrady doesn't seem too keen on Hong Kong or on Honolulu as as like a locale. And we get it. We certainly get it, but not like we do the Japanese locale. Maybe that's a little a little bit of heaven that that Kestrel's trying to keep for himself. You know, I, I kind of like that. I like that reading of it. It's true. Well, from what I got from Kestrel's interview is that he loves Hawaii. He loves watching like the volcanic the volcano, like you know, he has another house on on, on another island in, um, in Hawaii, and he loves the landscape. He loves it there. He loves the ethnicity of the population and the culture there. So he does love it. But in terms of writing the novel, I just think Honolulu, as you said earlier in our discussion on the environs, is that he 
he takes Honolulu for granted, but it's also the, it's just, it's America. As like you said, there's always a beer yeah. at the bar. Yeah. So he'll get in the detail on the police investigation. He gives you scant notes on what's going on in Honolulu because at the moment, what's going on in Honolulu is not important. It's just simply the investigation that's important. Yeah, Pearl mm-hmm. Harbor is mm-hmm. coming and all and all that, but we don't get to see Pearl Harbor attacked in this story. We don't get that perspective at all. Instead, we get Hong Kong and Tokyo. And yeah. and so there's a detachment from it that I think is, inter- is interesting because, you know... There is. What if, I if think it, that's, that's much if, better than what I said. That expression yeah. is much better than what I said. There's a detachment yeah. from the Hawaiian side of things, whereas we get immersed in Japan. And I don't know if that's the author trying to save it for himself or, as you say, save it for the character. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, It's because it's a forced separation. The umbilical cord from America, Mm -hmm. from Hawaii, is cut. And now he's in this whole new world. I mean, he's been to China. We know that. But a Hong Kong prison and then surviving that ordeal and getting to Tokyo with being in, you know, basically in the lion's den, essentially, um, to me, like, I, th- I think it's like it's a forced journey, but it's a believably forced journey. And it helps the characters see the world in a different perspective than other people would have had during the war. Yeah, good point. Well, I went for a four in my environment scoring. What did you go for? I think everything in this book was beautifully written. Even the even like I like the de- just the simple declarative descriptions of Honolulu and Hawaii and all the geography of of like you know the Wiley of of the you know of of the Wainay range and uh, all the different focal points that he has and mm-hmm. had in Hawaii. I thought they were rendered perfectly in terms of what kind of story he was telling. And then we get to the point where the story becomes an epic, and then we get Hong Kong and all its glory and 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 Tokyo beautifully described, uh, bitterly as well as as you know passionately. And to me, I, I think this is like when this is what this story does so well to me is world building and making you feel like you're there. And the realism that was in the writing too. the environs, I can't help but give it full marks. So five out of five for me. Awesome. Well, that that's both of us with a five then. Well, let's let's finish off then with our talk on secondary or supporting characters. Uh, this book's got a great cast. Um, yes, you don't necessarily like them all, or you don't always get a hundred percent from them. But you believe uh, them. you believe in them, and you and and they're functional for purpose. They're also uh, more than functional when they need to be, aren't they? They are absolutely everything. Is, every character you meet in this book is not a waste at all. Like there is no, no. character in here that, that I think could be taken out because they all serve the story. They all get things done, and it, whether it's like. Um, Oh, what's her name? Her her last name is Lee. Uh, the sec the secretary or this the, who works at the police station. Um, okay, right. Yeah, like even that character is pivotal. Dorothy is pivotal. Uh, yeah. Kincaid. Uh, just yeah. everything works together. Devries, like every character fills their function perfectly in this story, and they each have their own little layer of depth that when you bump into their characters. You, you 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 see them as living, breathing human beings, if possible. And mm-hmm. again, this is the strength of the world building and how well uh, Kestrel portrays human relationships. And that's where I fall into. Again, this is a five out of five category for me. Superb. Nice one. I went four and a half. And okay. I think part of the reason I went four and a half instead of five. But see, again, you put... 
you put um, Sachi and Kansai in with the secondary characters, right? If I'd done true. that, I would have been meeting you there as well. Um, <laughs> true, true. That that's a that's a certainly deserving score. Um, I don't think you're gushing there. I want to come back to talk for a second about this character of Dorothy, but m- more about Kate. I really like her character, and she's yeah. cool in the sense that she's kind of like a femme fatale or would have been a femme fatale in a different story, right? But here, Absolutely. she's pre- she's presented as a caring friend of Dorothy. And it, it was, though, wasn't it? It was left ambiguous as to whether she was the blonde Kay who was working with Smith at the phony company, you know, the one who set him up in the police lineup. Oh, I think that yeah. would have been really interesting if Kate was the Kay or what was the name? What was her name on the... Uh, Claire. Clara, Clara, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it would have been neat to see if there was a connection there because we know that she had a connection with Smith. I, d- I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm playing devil's advocate. When when I saw that she was a blonde, I was wondering, oh my god, is that's right. Be Why tell us that? Yeah, yeah. Clara, but then he <laughs> yeah. didn't recognize her, so you knew it wasn't her. Mm-hmm. But that would maybe explain some of her awkwardness around him with respect to uh, wanting to. You know, she was very suspicious and maybe suspicious is not the right word. I mean, she's a, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, I just thought that was cool. Emily Cam, the sketch artist, uh, she was she was neat the way she came in and out of the story. And she also contributed, obviously, to the plot. I love Fred, that she wasn't a love interest. I, I felt yeah, that they I thought were that going was good. that direction with her, but they didn't. I'm completely platonic. Kestrel didn't, and, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, Kestrel didn't. Yeah, I was completely, uh, completely platonic. And it's because to me, that just would have been just creating more confusion and chaos in a story when you don't need to you don't need to yeah and she she was the rightful recipient to, uh of the 500 dollars to kincaid's money i like that yeah um, absolutely what about fred ball uh i mean he's a he's a tough guy bad cop type but yeah he likes his interrogations and he goes a bit far but he does get the job done and i think mcgrady's relationship with him naturally it's conflicted but when beamer puts him onto the case he thinks it's going to weigh McGrady down a bit, but actually Fred is all right. And I think when we get to that Thanksgiving dinner at Molly's backyard, we know he's all right, you know? Yes. And I wonder if this is Beamer not reading his police force correctly, his sergeants or his his detective or his lieutenants correctly. Because Assuming, assuming, yeah. Assuming, yeah. Just assuming that Fred's going to be the guy to water down McGrady and keep him in line when realistically they work okay together. You know, I don't know. How did you feel about how did you feel about Ball and Molly? Like, I, I get that he's he's the reason that McGrady can't take a post-war job in Honolulu anymore. But how did you feel about that whole Molly and him getting together? Like, Molly could have just left, right? Why is is it important for the conflict to be there? Would would anything have changed if Joe yeah. had come back to Honolulu and just restarted things with Ball? Did 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 we need to have that in there? Was that a bit of stuffing, a bit of conflict? Like, what did you think? Is I mean, how well, believable, I guess, is it that that relationships ended and your buddies, you know, hooked up with your girlfriends? Ultimately, is what I'm asking. I mean, it's very soap opera esque. I agree with that. It is. 100%. It is. Yeah. yeah. But if anyone yeah. was to be Molly, if anyone believably was to be, you, you know, like. If anyone was believe, if you think of like I don't know, like the Count of Monte Cristo, right? How like the villain ends up with Edmondante's girl while he's away in the Chateau If, right? Um, it's kind of that similar situation where 
a lot of soldiers got the Dear John letter, and went, or when they returned home, yeah, they yeah, were yeah. they were married to like they were now with a naval officer or just some other guy from like a, a private or something. And you know, there there was a lot of that was happening a lot because some people, some long times, long term relationships don't work out very well, or they or they weren't strong to begin with, and then the war just sep- creates that divide even further. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, totally. That, that's yeah, fair enough. Okay, so it's I believable, mean, and it's not too distracting in the story. Sometimes absent doesn't make the heart grow fonder. But if anyone was to basically take over Molly's, take over Joe's role as Molly's boyfriend or husband, Ball would make sense because he would have come because he knows her. He would have comforted her, and maybe they just would have eventually found each other. Like I don't think Ball was up to no good. I think Ball did comfort her when when she passed away. He's yes, also getting over so his too. own. When if she believed if she believed he passed away or he believed that well everyone believed that he was dead, and then da 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 you know eventually you know what that's mm-hmm. what happens. I do like how um, even though Ball he drinks a bit and and he's a bit violent in interrogation room even particularly to like young men. Um, there's definitely not there's he has flaws one hundred percent, but he he see he very very straight face sternly. Um, sympathetically told Joe what was going on in regard to this. He looked him in the eyes and told him, this is what's happening. I'm with Molly now. We're married. Like, That's unfortunately, right, yeah. you have to deal. I'm sorry, but this is just how it is. Yeah. And there's a bit of conflict in terms of how we interpret the the scene where Joe punches Ball out. Did Joe punch him out because of the, of the situation with him and Molly? Or did he punch Ball out because he might've been reminded of Sashi's reaction to him killing that young man. Cause remember ball was beating mm-hmm. up that kid, beating up a kid at this time right. or was yeah. about to. Yeah. And I think it's a bit of both. Yeah. There's, there's definitely a, there's, there's, I would say there's mixed emotions in that punch. Mm-hmm. And credit to Kestrel how, for not telling us as well. Exactly. He, he left it up in the open. It's a very human reaction that ball that um, Joe had in that situation and so, mm-hmm. and he kept it ambiguous, which I think is really good because it lets us wonder. And it's not, mm-hmm. and we don't need to have conclusion on that for the story to work. We can wonder, and it makes things more interesting and intriguing in terms of the character development. And I think it's because of that conflict it, why it's believable why Ball jumps in with Joe on bringing down Beamer. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Did you have, Josh, a favorite character? Like, I know we don't usually do this on the show, but because there is a lot of world building here, as you say, was there a character that really stood out for you that you came away from the book feeling like, yeah, I, I enjoyed reading him. I enjoyed that character. Like, in, in the secondary cast, in the supporting cast, somebody stand out for you? I think there's some characters I found, yeah, were, were, were uh, vivid. Um, I really like Takahashi, absolutely. Um, I, I, well, yeah. no, I, I love Takahashi's character. He was really good. I wanted more of him. That's how much I wanted him. Uh, DeVries, I also found kind of interesting. He was very believable in the situation that he was in, how he acted. Like, sorry, like, I got to go to India with the rest of my diplomatic team and the embassy. That's I, right. I can't yeah. help you. Yeah, I can't help you. And and, you, in, in, and that's in why. The yeah. does, he, in the way he does pay back that favor, though, in the end, he does. He totally he does. does he totally India. does. Yeah. yeah. Serendipitously, but it still works. Uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. Kate, I found I found a great character, uh, fully fleshed out, and we only meet her halfway through. I also was intrigued by I think it's Kasumi, uh, Takahashi's uh, ex-wife. Uh, she was oh yeah, intriguing yes, yes, in her she own was. Way. 
I loved how, you know, how it just shows the ethnic openness of Hawaii, how like she's like the head of her bridge club. She's in a, you know, <laughs> she's, mm-hmm. she's, she's socialite, well. essentially. She's a socialite. Yeah, exactly. So she's someone to respect. Um, you know, as a very kind of positive view of America, which I really enjoyed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wanted more Kondo. I thought he was kind of cool. I wanted to see more. Yeah, Kondo is cool. He was a bit of a heavy, wasn't he? Like a name like Kondo, you just think it's a heavy yeah. noun. It's a heavy name. He's he's just going to be a tough, but there's more to him than that. Uh, I, I like Kate. Read... I like Kate. I think she was, yeah. she was probably my surprise takeaway from the story. I really liked the way like I wasn't upset that those pages were slowing down the story at this important time because they were helping they were helping with the Dorothy stuff but also she was very rich like her world was very rich to me and I liked the way she was part of this network of telephones and bars and asked this way and used those words so she kind of has a criminal angle to her but she's also surviving the best she can in this terrible world you know like what she saw what she went through and now she's cut out a piece of this earth for herself this world is now giving her something back and I liked that I liked that you know the sex was more on her terms now than it had been in the past not that it was entirely on her terms but again like a really interesting take on what otherwise would have been a traditional femme fatale character coming in late in the story and really really kind of coloring and 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 decorating that that last third of the book in a in a cool plot important way i liked kate a lot and i liked uh sachi but uh, i thought kate was kate was cool as a secondary player yeah and yes, Kincaid was kind of ambiguous, wasn't he? Yeah, he's one that could easily yeah. always. Oh, Alexander and Baldwin was part of this as well. Like he was a political figure with like a political and corporate figure, so believably he could have been involved somehow. So you're always suspicious of him. So Kestrel has given us red herrings to play with, which which is perfectly fine with a mystery novel. I appreciate that. I was going to say too that Miyako. Um, the uh, victim, uh, mm-hmm. Takahashi's niece. Yeah, the translator. Um, yeah, the translator. Her story was heartbreaking. You know, it was like, heartbreaking. Yeah, that's uh, that's like, a good word for it. Yeah, this young girl who was like, you know, against the nationalist fervor that was in Japan, who wanted to do the right thing, and and how they made her suffer for it. It just angers me so much. But just goes to show, you know, the evil behind it. Even though, like, mm-hmm. I don't want to say black and white evil because does that really exist in a way in, in yeah, the world that yeah. we live in? But you can't help see the darkness in it and what happened to her and everything. And and then the darkness that befell the world, you know, in that situation. Mm-hmm. But at the mm-hmm. same time, if you look at it, I mean, had she lived, would Pearl Harbor have been attacked? That's right. Would yeah. They, that's what would, Takahashi would, asks, right? If she had yeah. passed on the information that she might have had to Russo, might it have yes. got back? and changed the course of history yeah it's interesting so i like that too i I like the fact that even though it wasn't a pivotal it wasn't a pivotal moment because obviously it's a it's a fictitious situation that was created with this girl but in a way by killing this girl that allowed pearl harbor to happen but at the end that backfired on the axis powers because that brought the americans into the war that led to the Pacific Theater, that led to Midway, that led to Guadalcanal, that led to the island hopping all the way to Okinawa, which eventually led to the leveling of Tokyo, and then, of course, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So it's, you know, it's it's almost like she was the Pandora's box, and she was the sacrifice that needed to happen for mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the freedom of the world, essentially. It's it's kind yeah. of powerful if you, if you think about it. 
It is, and, yeah. All these, all these yeah. little bits drop through the story. Well, Josh, the scores are in for Five Decembers by James Kestrel. Uh, I'm at a 21 out of 25, and you're at a 22.5 out of 25. So we like this book, and we would recommend this book, wouldn't we? Oh, 100%. Uh, it's a good one and a deserving, I'm sure, though I didn't read all the uh, candidates, it was deserving of the Edgar Award. I'd like to see more, although this doesn't feel like a character who's going to come back <laughs> into a sequel. Like he feels like, you know, when he's in those hot springs in Japan, that's where he needs to be. And I don't see him coming back and doing detective work with Sachi by his side. I just don't see that. Maybe it could be kind of um, a situation where like maybe 20 years later and he's like involved with like, the Yakuza taking over, mm. um, taking over mm. Tokyo, and what, what Americanization has done to Japanese culture in a way for Kestrel that's an interesting to, take to portray okay. that. Because in the podcast, he talks about how like Tokyo was completely leveled, and you have to really look hard to find the history because mm-hmm. so much of it was built up at, was so built up after 1945, and you mm. have the Americanization of Japan, and even in, even in today, in its anime, in its manga, in its films and movies and literature. Like you can see the over the topness of Americanization that Japan portrays and it still manages to hold deep into its roots, you know, that old culture in in its own way. It's almost like it's still warring between itself. And uh, I just find that really interesting and sad, Mm -hmm. but you know, it's interesting. Well, let us know what you thought of five Decembers by James Kestrel. Uh, Get us on the socials at lighting underscore pipes on Instagram or lightingpipes at gmail.com and let us know what you thought of this one. It's uh, it's a big one, a big read for us and uh, a very valuable read. I, I enjoyed this. I enjoyed this process a lot, buddy. And I'm glad that uh, I'm glad you did too. And I think readers will as well. Absolutely. Recommend 100%. So, yep. So what do we got coming up on Lighting the Pipes? So Lighting the Pipes coming up next, uh, we're going to venture into the world of comic books. Um, we are. It's a first to- for us. Yeah, we're going to be taking up Frank Miller's Batman Year One. I was thinking about The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller because it's much more of a, it's a much more famous work uh, in terms of Batman storytelling. But um, I, I'm happy I think with this. Need, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy yeah, with this. I think I think for Dark Knight Returns, you need some knowledge, some uh, some expansive knowledge of the DC universe, whereas Batman um, Year One works on its own as a story, and yeah. in terms of of his telling so and also you know batman is the dark knight detective he's up there with sherlock holmes he's been doing he's been fighting crime since the late 30s so figured you know we might as well do something on batman i think it's i think it's a great inspired choice i'm really looking forward to it and after that we'll get ourselves into the world of jean le too because i think we're going to have a look at one of his first novels and of course another lighting the pipes noir is also in the pipeline for the next few weeks i know you've got a good thing going we we won't say too much yet but uh, that's going to be fun for listeners too so lots coming up in the autumn on lighting the pipes thank you josh as always always great fun awesome chat here today on the five decembers and thank you everybody for listening i look forward to getting you back here on the show soon See you again next time.